0: Hi, I'm Rod Murray, host of State of the Game, and you're listening to Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan on the and Golf Network. Visit www.talkinggolf.com for more quality golf podcasts. Hello, this is Derek Duncan. This is the Feed the Ball podcast. This is episode 46, and today I'm speaking with Matt Dusenberry. It may be difficult to remember now, or to even fathom, but there was a time when golf architectural firms fielded large staffs and had 8, 10, 12 or more projects under construction in various stages of development, often with the work spread through multiple countries around the globe. One of the most prolific firms of the 1990s and early 2000s was Greg Norman Course Design. The Shark and Friends were all over the world, with offices in Australia and Florida, and they built nearly a 100 courses from Southeast Asia to South Africa, to England, and the United States. This was the environment Matt Dusenberry came up in, working as a field marshal for Norman Course Design during the company's heyday. During his time there, Dusenberry participated in the completion of golf courses on six continents. When Dusenberry founded his own company in 2013, he decided to go the opposite direction. He runs Dusenberry Design as a boutique operation, along with partners Tad Burnett and James McKenna. The group's renovation work to date has been exemplary, The highlight being the dramatic remodel of Keeney Park, a municipal course in Hartford, Connecticut, with the first holes there designed by Devereux Emmett in the 1920s. Duesenberry used the course's Golden Age lineage as a motif, incorporating strategies, green shapes, and bunker styles that evoke everything from Emmett's early work to more rectilinear forms that recall Victorian-era golf. It's bold, courageous, retro-inventive, and in a unique and exciting combination, public. I've personally been intrigued by that course, as well as some of the other original projects Matt's developed. You'll get a clear sense in this discussion, the range of ideas he has about golf design. It's pretty cool to see someone who's been all over the world building certain types of large-scale development golf courses, consciously move toward a more craftsman, artistic style of design that emphasizes playability, variety, and character, and to do it so well. Matt's a really smart architect, grounded, a cool guy and very easy and fun to talk to. I'm pretty sure we'll be hearing a lot from Duesenberry Design in the coming years. And you can hear from Matt Dusenberry right now.
1: Yeah, so I'm originally from Wisconsin, and uh, I live in Milwaukee now, and uh, so kind of based here. And uh, for some reason, of all the places I could live, I'm back in Wisconsin for all these years and uh, suffering through these winters.
0: (laughs) Well, did you move back there recently? Did you live away for a while?
1: Yeah, so when I... um, prior to that, when I, most of the time I was working with, uh, with Greg Norman, kind of moved around project to project and place to place. And then I guess it's been a while now, but probably eight to 10 years ago, moved back to Wisconsin. Uh, so sort I've of lived here the last kind of eight to 10 years and traveled from here and, uh, you know, uh, back and forth and that sort of thing. Well, so are, yeah, you, yeah.
0: are you surprised? I, it sounds like you're surprised you found yourself back in Wisconsin. Did you, was that not
1: the plan? <laughs> I'm surprised this time of year. You got, you have to talk to me when it's like September. Then I say, I love it. I, want, I don't want to live anywhere else. But yeah. When it's February, March, <laughs> then I say, Derek, what am I doing here? Would well, you used to that? <laughs> so,
0: I mean, if you grew up there, then you know, once you experience that when you're young, you can handle it, yeah. and you're used to it. You know, you know what to do. So it's really not that. I grew up in Colorado, right. so the snow was never an issue for me.
1: Right. did Did, did you uh, Did you grow up in Colorado, or where are you from here? Yeah,
0: I grew up, up in Colorado. Um, lived there, okay. you know, for most of my young life. Anyway, I lived in the southeast now for it's. Probably, I guess it's going on almost 20 years, but before that, I was a Colorado guy.
1: I've got a chance to spend um, a decent amount of time in Colorado over the years just with uh, recent projects and projects in the past and that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, uh, yeah fantastic place. Well, right? Wisconsin has been... Too.
0: I don't know. I wouldn't. I don't want to say unlikely, but it's been a hot spot for golf lately, or a lot of attention's been drawn to it. There's been a lot of action in the golf world. It's an unlikely for those, at least for those of us who aren't really familiar with it. It seems would seem like an unlikely place to all of a sudden to be a legitimate national golf destination.
1: Well, certainly the weather would indicate that. You know, why would you be investing all of these kind of resources into a you know five six month golf season if you're lucky? Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, certainly I think, you know, the, the overall trend that got it all started certainly was with Kohler. And um, I remember growing up when they built the first course there and Black Wolf Run came out. And that was the, the biggest thing ever, right? You know, when uh, growing up, kid playing golf, get a chance to go over there and do that. And it was like a once in a lifetime thing, right? To get to go play uh, the original, which I guess now, you know, it's split apart now, right? Um, but the original. Yeah,
0: the kind the, of river the river course, course they've kind uh, of split that up.
1: Yeah, it's kind of. And unfortunately, right, because uh, it's the best state team there is the original kind of routing. They've had it recently a couple times uh, before a recent tournament. I forget what it was a few years ago. It was something, I think, uh, a women's championship that was there. And they played it for a couple of years in a row of just that course and got a chance to go play it again. And it was uh, a blast. And, and from there, but, you know, and then there's obviously things like Aaron Hills were, were built and, and some things there. And, you know, funny enough, the Sand Valley area in Wisconsin. Uh, We used to grow up, uh, all my aunts and uncles and my parents had a cottage, family cottage, only a couple miles from there. So we used to go there every summer Hmm. uh, to a little lake house, spend like two weeks. And, you know, it's all sandy. We played golf around there, all those kind of things. But never knew there were those big sand dunes there, of you know, 40, 50, 60 feet. And it was only five miles away. Yeah. You, ta- you have to kind of <laughs> so.
0: plunge into the heart of that territory to figure that out from the, when you're, when you drive to sand Valley from the outside, you'd never know that those dunes were there. There's that little, oh, no. there's that oh. little, uh, golf course with the evergreen trees all over it, right outside, right near the entrance where you turn into Sin- sand Valley off sure. the highway. And you're like, there, there cannot be this world-class golf here. It's, right. it's got to look like this course right here.
1: Right yeah so Lake Arrowhead is the course that's right near there yeah. we used to go play there all the time right uh, you know I get <laughs> dropped off as kids my brothers and everybody play there and and we thought that was great you know kind of cool sandy kind of stuff and you know and again you know it's this is 20 20 30 years ago we go do this right and uh, it's kind of funny now you go back and look at those from a 30 year perspective and you're like well, these are pretty kind of ordinary here, especially compared to their new neighbor uh, that's just down the street. But, you know, everything is relatively flat around there. There's a lot of sandy soil for a, bit, a large distance, you know, going all the way up to, you know, Stevens Point, which is a little farther north and, and around there. But, uh, you know, that traditionally, that's an area of the state that is also, you know, I think in general, I don't think anyone could pull that off other than, you know, someone like the Kaisers. It's, it's, uh, I think it's the poorest county in the state of Wisconsin. That's right. Um, right. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's traditionally been, a ton of, I guess there's some kind of red pine or whatever it is for, um, for pulp, for paper, you know, paper has been a a big thing in Wisconsin for a, a long time and it's been less and less over the years. And, and certainly the areas there, there's a couple of paper factories just to the north of there. And I think they might all be closed now. Uh, so that was a contributor as well. Um, so it's really left it, uh, you know, wanting for some kind of other industry. And certainly, you know, something like tourism, which you, you would not have thought even five years ago that there would be that kind of golf tourism that could go there. So, yeah. It's, it's funny how your tastes yeah.
0: change as you grow up to... The golf oh, yeah. courses that I grew up on were all kind of on the front range area. So there are very few trees. Sure. So the, the greatest golf courses that I thought existed all had trees on them just because it was what you didn't, you didn't get trees and lakes. That would like, uh, oh. I remember looking, flipping yeah. through the, you know, the best hundred best golf courses in America books and seeing these courses from other parts of the <laughs> countries or whether it's Florida or Pennsylvania. And just thinking that that was the the pinnacle of <laughs> golf, golf course design or golf courses, just trees and lakes.
1: Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting when you, whatever kind of golf you grow up on, I think there's some kind of like, Gravitation to that for the kind of the rest of your life, you know. I grew up playing uh, golf in Wisconsin, and I would consider it to be more parkland golf, right? It's a um, lot of lot of trees along every hole, right? You know, it's all cool season grass, um, very few lakes, right? right. Um, and you know, that's the sort of golf that uh, generally you know attracted back to. You, and there seems like there's a comfort level to some of that sometimes. Where hey, these feel like golf courses I grew up playing. Um, you know, obviously, to a point with. It can get overtreed and, you know, too narrow and all those kind of things. But, uh, there's like a, a comfort level for me growing up playing that all the time that to go play other parkland courses around the country that I have that same similar feel. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it, it feels right for some reason, right. You know, I still really appreciate all the links golf and the really open stuff and the contrast and everything. I think my appreciation is pretty low for tons of water <laughs> as i think maybe most people are mm-hmm. but um but uh yeah it's kind of interesting uh it, yeah so wisconsin becoming a kind of a, a place to travel to golf to uh i would have said you're crazy when i was growing up here 15 years old say well what would you be coming here for is all these other places to go yeah
0: you mentioned black wolf <laughs> yeah. and you mentioned lakes what was your impression of p die as In this kind of time period that we're talking about before you were a full-fledged golf architect, but when you were growing up, he had a national reputation. He was probably one of the first golf course architects that, you know, the average golfer knew who that was other than maybe RTJ.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I wouldn't know who it was only because probably a black wolf run um, at that point. Right. You know, being a, I guess I would have been like a teenager at the time um, that uh, you know, playing a lot of golf and then them coming in to do uh black wolf run to start out with. Um, and then obviously followed up not too far after with uh, the metals course. And then there was obviously a pretty big gap of time between there and, and doing the straights course. But you know, at the time, my view of just what architecture would have been, period, or what a golf course architect does, I mean, I would have have barely knew that that was really a profession, right, until you start to get more into it to decide, oh, there's people that do this for a living, and and, uh, here's who they are, and certainly probably top of the list for somebody like me that to know who these people are would have been Pete Dye, just because it's, you know, in the area. Now, other people that you would have heard of would have been Professional golfers doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone knows, yeah. hey, Jack Nicholas is designing a course here and there, whether maybe it's Arnold Palmer, you know, what are the bigger names at the time uh, that were kind of going through there? Would have definitely heard of like Tom Fazio, but certainly being a little closer to home and actually played a few of the courses it would have been, you know, Pete Dye and had no idea about all the stuff <laughs> about being out on site and building it themselves, right? And, and uh, certainly did not know what a character. You know pete was that's for sure and you, you kind of get all the stories over the year and and later on some later projects i had actually had the opportunity to spend some time with them on uh, a project with uh, with greg norman a co-design project that's in uh, down in naples and uh, needless to say there's a, there's always some good stories or everybody has a few stories pete die stories from over the years that uh, uh, it, you know there's a guy who uh, uh i certainly an absolute innovator for i think everything that you look at that people are doing today you know often hear about, you know, what the best projects are in the last, you know, 20 years. And they all seem to follow the kind of design build or some kind of hybrid self-perform model. And he was doing that long, long before anybody even knew that was kind of a thing, right? You know, go back to the 60s and, you know, he's jumping on a bulldozer with himself and Alice and they're off on whatever project and they're out there doing it themselves. And at the time, I'm sure it was looked at as, uh, who are these two crazy people? And, you know, the profession is, You know in an office and doing plans and you know coming out to the site and there's a contractor and you know what would they possibly be doing out here you know that sort of thing and so uh i i certainly didn't have the appreciation of it at that point other than going out to see for the first time you go see i would say most of the golf that i grew up on like you know most most people growing up i played municipal golf early on right and most of the municipal golf and this isn't anything different from wisconsin or anywhere else but it tends to be more on the basic side right and so then you get a chance to go out and play you know the uh the river course original river course and it's the most radical stuff i've ever seen right like what this is this is all crazy right you know all the all the railroad ties and the hard lines and the uh everything is shaped the whole corridor right it's all very radical and and uh in terms of you know the visual part of it right and uh so it was you know i think that's probably probably the first introduction to kind of i guess you know serious um, architecture you know or someone that's really uh, really good at their craft and their profession putting something out there and then being able to go experience it and uh, uh, you, you know i wouldn't have been able to appreciate all the details certainly that I would today but you definitely knew going out there to say hey this is something special something totally out of the ordinary that you're not going to see other places even if you don't know all the you know all the ins and outs of hey this is what inspired this whole or you know here's what this is kind of you know like and and what all the strategy is you know and certainly when you know younger 12 13 years old going out to play it you know don't get all of the well the tee shot here is supposed to be a little bit right to left and the next one's supposed to be a little bit left or right right you don't appreciate all that stuff right you're just kind of taking it all in and um probably in those days too if you grew up a little bit like i did is you're a lot more worried about your score when you're younger right mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah and uh and obviously less so today right That. that um, you know, the, the older I get, it's more the, the opposite, right? It's all about kind of enjoying the experience and the the people you go play with and, and do all those things. And uh, get, it really goes much farther away from, hey, uh, I bogeyed that last hole. I'm, I'm, I'm mad. Yeah, Wait, I'm let's go out. to the next hole. Yeah. <laughs>
0: right? yeah. Well, I think a lot of people who look at Pete Dye's courses now still really only pay attention to the – that surface application, you know the visuals, yep. the the the, the yep. style of bunkering, the steep slopes, the railroad ties, all the all the cliche yep. things that, um, yeah, obviously worked for him to kind of grab attention, whether he wanted it or not. But you know it's hard for a lot of the average golfer to move past that. It's just not in everybody's vocabulary to think about golf that way. Um, yeah. But when you're when you're young, like you're just saying, you're very susceptible to that kind of thing, and that's what really ca- captivated, yeah. captured my attention. You know, yeah. growing up, like I, similar to you, I played public golf, yeah. and i was seeing the Pete Dye catalog in golf courses and in magazines and in pictures i mean it was the stuff of fantasy and you know the idea of you know playing one of those for the first time as a young guy it was like like cracking open like lord of the rings or something you know it's just like it's not the best maybe the best highest literature you can get into but it's the most exciting at that time
1: (laughs) yeah it's a good read right it's a fast read and when you get there you want to go and and look at everything that you can when you see it and and it's interesting as the Obviously, years have gone on and, and have been in the profession a lot longer, and able to kind of analyze golf courses a little bit better. You can deconstruct all of that eye candy, right? And mm-hmm. you can take all that stuff away, and if you look at the nuts and bolts of the holes, uh, they're really solid they're strategically, right? Exactly. Um, and and that's what really I think is you know makes it last over time. Um, the rest of it, like you said, is just kind of superficial. And um, don't get me wrong; I mean, aesthetics matter, and all those things matter. But uh, you know, depending on your tastes. Some people, you know, it's really jarring, and say, oh, "I have no appetite for it. I don't like it at all. It's way too, you know, crazy and erratic, and, and all of those things." And other people, hey, that's that that's what they seek out, you know. So, I mean, it certainly uh, um, it certainly yeah, it's, it certainly puts a position and separates, if nothing else, uh, at the time, certainly separated those projects and those golf courses from everything else by leaps and bounds, right? So,
0: do you feel that? Dies architecture will stand the test of time, like in, like in 30 or 40 years, we'll have enough sense to keep our hands off it and just appreciate it for what it is or.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Cause you, if you look at, you know, I think you look at anything over a period of time um, and certainly an architect that's really prolific, right. That, you know, go, go back and go to like a Ross or, or, or some other people that have had a lot of courses and Pete's had a, a lot of courses. Right. I think when you look at that whole, um, grouping over time. A over time, uh, their their projects change a lot, right? In terms of their style. So if you go back and look at really early Pete stuff, yeah. I think two things. One, budgets were lower, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and two, they're way more subtle, right? They're way more low to the ground and everything is is aesthetically just completely different, right? Let's say, you know, you're at like the golf club or something around um, Columbus and you look at how that is all laid out, right? You wouldn't even be recognizable that it's the same that as of like a Whistling Straits, right? Yeah. But also when you look just inside of somebody's, you know, um, uh, body of work, uh, so they, they change over time. But even projects that, you know, and Pete's a pretty good example of this, I think, is that I mean, let's face it, there's projects that he spent a tremendous amount of time on, had really good clients, really good sites. Um, Those are projects that have done, you know, much better in terms of whether it's critical claim or financially and people want to go out of their way to play it or have tournaments at, that sort of thing. But there's also groupings, you know, just like a a Donald Ross that maybe he didn't get to as much, right, Um, that uh, maybe aren't the same kind of quality. And so I think like any era of architects, I think there's going to be some that, you know, maybe have more... You know, pedigree or, or more uh, tournament history, or just a, a whole lot more architectural significance than some that probably have less. And I think the ones that have more will probably get uh, protected a little bit more, or you know, um, you know that sort of you know eye to it. And I think other ones, you know, may get changed, and probably some of them already have been changed over time, right? You know, I mean, he has projects from sixties and seventies that you know, if you go back to today, I bet a bunch of them have been changed already.
0: If he was still working, he'd he'd be back changing a lot of it himself.
1: I, yeah and i think that's totally you know that's the most yeah i absolutely totally agree with that i yeah. mean i think anybody that's really has a critical eye i don't care who you are pete or anybody else if you give you enough time and you say hey come back next year and what would you do different i mean hey i, I could go to my projects i'd change something every year <laughs> if yeah. you let me no, right? no doubt. So, no doubt. i mean who wouldn't and so yeah absolutely and i think that's really the stuff that if you look at uh, maybe the places he lived, I guess, right? So if he lived in Gulfstream and he lived up in Indiana and the, the courses that are really close by to him there, uh, I'm sure those are the most tinkered, the most changed over time you know, projects that he, that he had. Is it you know, kind of a little bit like Ross and Pinehurst, right? He had access to him. and lived there all the time. Hey, let's go change this. Let's do that this year. Let's do this next year. And um, yeah, you get a chance to you know constantly change him and do those things. So yeah, I think it'll be a mix, I think is the answer, right? Is that uh, over time... Some, will, I think, will stay and, and and have like a restorative and kind of protected mindset, and I think others will not. And I mean, that's just kind of the reality of the business, I think, you know.
0: Yeah, golf course architecture is really no different, in my mind, some people might disagree, but it's really no different than other art forms like painting or literature in, mm-hmm. in that you have great artists, but not everything they make is great. You have their masterworks, right. which are the ones that are really valued and usually protected and usually part of a collection or put on a... In the canon, or or what have you, and then you have a lot sure. of stuff that's just that's good work, but it's minor. You know, it doesn't draw the same critical acclaim. And all right. architecture like that it goes back to Donald Ross or not necessarily McKinsey. Almost everything he did was great, but but you sure. know, like Tillinghast, you know, they have they have their major works, and then they have a lot of other work, or right? a lot of it's good, but it's not it's not masterful.
1: Yep, yep. I agree. I so think I, perfect, that goes back yeah. to the point,
0: though. Like, as our tastes change, and Pete Dye's architecture is fairly polarizing it's it was it's always been polarizing throughout his career especially as he in, entered into that middle phase of his career that the, yep. the TPC era of really the yep. 80s going through whistling straits probably that yep. he really starts to divide people's opinions about his work and and how difficult it might be or or the the problems that it possesses or the earthworks that offend some people and it's sure. it's going to be polarizing in the future too so i i'm kind of i hope we don't get to this point as consumers or as Media or the intelligentsia or whatever you want to call it where we get some point where we don't value diversity anymore. Right, right. now, we're not in that place where we think a lot of Earth moving is healthy and constructive. We're kind of against sure. that. But I hope we don't phase out Pete Dye's work. You know, I, That's why I asked that question. I hope we can continue to, yeah, to yeah, value for still, what it is. I think
1: there's a still a place for for some of that stuff, though, when you talk about um, you know high Earth works and, and those sort of things. Because you know that's this is a good... I mean, we're recording this in a week where it's the... TPC, it's all grass, right? I mean, there's nothing more artificial than that completely, right? All the way through all 36 holes that are there. Um, And that's evolved a ton over time as well, right? When you go back and you see some of the old photos and um, you know, 16s had how many versions, right? Of that green and that approach. Mm-hmm. And it used to be way more rugged and, and um, uh, around the edges and kind of sandy and, you know, uh, grasses and things. And that's all been kind of, And of course, now we're, we're predisposed
0: yeah. just through influences yeah. to think that sand is great. And that looks really, that looks better than it does, you know, than it does right. now.
1: Right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And it's, so uh, it's totally changed. You know, it's an example of you know maybe a, a golf course that's sort of bucking the trends a little bit in some in some cases i think it's very pga tour of course right it's uh it's very player centric in in terms of how they've kind of sanitized the golf course over time you know and i think that's maybe just speaks more to uh, who owns and operates it really more than you know the architecture on the whole and and i think the last couple of renovations they've done there is obviously to respond to that right is to respond to um players sense of fairness right to remove some of the uh, uh some of those things around the edges that uh, create uh kind of random conditions and you know some sense of unfairness and it's very black and white and i think in general i know that you know tour players that's what they want right is they want that sense of fairness and <laughs> and some of the gray areas that that surround the golf course in terms of sandiness and randomness and lies and all those kind of things you know they i think ultimately they want that removed you know and certainly with tv and the tour and all those kind of things but uh yeah, I mean, just even the one golf course there at, at Sawgrass is a good example of just tastes changing over time and who's the owner, who's the operator, who's the audience, right? Yeah, it, it changes quite a bit. And there's such a chasm between, when um, I mean, we talk about this all the time with, with clients, is that there's such a chasm between tournament golf and the expectations and what's on TV and the golf that you and I play mm-hmm. that uh, you know they, they don't relate. You know very well at all, and uh, certainly a standard that's being held. And, you know, and I think there's probably a lot of architects to agree with this that uh, the standard of what's really good PGA Tour golf and what's really good, you know, golf that that people want to enjoy and play the regular player um, are don't you know don't have much to do with each other. Um, and a good you know a good example is like the rules, right? Every week you turn on, you know, happen to watching live at the players or whatever this morning and you know they always have some little profile on the the latest comments from tour players on this rule change and that rule change and um it has very little effect on the regular player i mean i don't i i don't know anybody that plays by the rules right you know and you go out and i mean at least for me anyway go out and play hey we hit it here it's in a hazard drop it go on right you play with good intentions but you don't play by the letter of the rules (laughs) No, no. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's kind of the spirit of it. And mm-hmm. um, everybody wants to keep pace of play moving. And, you know, how often does everybody put out?
0: Yeah, know, the not, only time not, I've not ever right, you know. gone back to a tee after I'd hit one OB was like in high school, a high school tournament. Right. <laughs> the minute I wasn't playing competitively <laughs> right. that nobody does that.
1: No, that's it. You know, you move on and you just go. And so, you know, everyone gets, you know, really worked up about, you know, certain items like that. And it just doesn't affect the regular golfer at all. You know, they look at it and say, what does that matter? That doesn't affect how I go play this match. We all kind of agree to a a subset of rules when we go play a match and we have at it and and go, you know, so, yeah.
0: Well, you mentioned something uh, just a moment ago about, you know, the, the, how tastes change and, you know, the focus on tournament golf and, you know, you, and we'll get into this a little bit later in the talk as well, but when you worked for Greg Norman, I'm guessing that a lot of the, the clients that he was attracting wanted a quote unquote championship level golf course, whatever that means. You know, that's something that that the client valued, that the world of golf valued a lot. Are you seeing a change away from that now with the clients that you're speaking to on your own?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the time, um, I mean, there would be very specific conversations in some of the projects that I worked on with Greg from the client. And they would say, oh, we want this to be uh, yeah championship quality. And there's always it, not always, but oftentimes, and especially in, in, in a lot of those years was, well, at some point, we'd like to have a tournament here, a professional tournament. Can we do that? And can you make a golf course for that? And and when you tell a group of designers and, and I think I don't want to speak for, for Greg, we tell them that and say, well, OK, well, here's here's the here's the, the kind of marching orders. Uh, we're going to go do this and so and and maybe a good example that would be even more recent um let's say a tpc san antonio is a a project at greg's right Mm -hmm. and that was built purpose built uh, along with the other course um even though it's 51 weeks a year of a resort course i mean it's kind of purpose built between the pga tour and 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 greg's design firm and a lot of decisions that are made throughout are well, we need to have this with the fairways, we need to do this, this, and this, and it's all for tour players, and it doesn't really respond, then I think week in, week out as well to the resort golfer, right? It becomes very, very difficult, right? Um, and so certainly the transition from then to now is, is you know, again, a huge transition. We stress, uh, you know, we're not anything too out of, uh, I think the ordinary and what's out there today is that we um, Our clients, it's, you know, our average client, let's say it's a private club, let's say it's even municipal, either one, um, is that, uh, you know, your average handicap is going to be an 18 handicap, you know, 15 to 18 handicap. Those are your 99%, right? Those are the people that pay the bills. Um, Player enjoyment, you know, playability, which is kind of a big buzzword that everyone uses, right? Uh, Those are all at the forefront uh, in terms of... uh, the approach right out of the block, you know, kind of the big picture mantra that you start out the project with on how you make decisions, make all the small decisions along the way. There isn't anybody since I've started my own firm in 2013, In the last six years, we haven't had discussion with anybody that's, uh, how do we make this golf course harder and harder? (laughs) Uh, how do we build a new golf course? That's hard, right? You know, those, i we've never had that discussion with anybody and we don't have that discussion at any point to say, Hey, what's, what's your philosophy, Matt, when you come in here and we're talking about you know, most of our work's all renovation work. So say, uh, what's the philosophy? And we don't say, oh, this is too easy. You need to make it harder. That's never part of it, right? It's uh, all the conversation is about uh, character, variety, interest, um, you know, unique features, memorability. Um, there's certainly all the other parts with it, the financial side, you know, ease of maintenance, all the things that go with it. But yeah, it's that, that conversation of the 90s and 2000s of we want to host a tournament here. It never happens. At least not for me. <laughs>
0: no, so, that's such a that's yeah, so heartening yeah. to hear because that yeah. was probably you know if any client who had a checklist any developer probably yeah. was number one or two on the top of the list is you know we want a championship style or championship capabilities for our golf course on top of yep. you know we envi- we're envisioning championship level conditioning as, as well as that and that drove the market. To such a yes. to such a degree, so it's it's very heartening to hear that eventually this tide is starting to turn, and you're getting clients who are more interested in in character and and right. features and interest and variety.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. It used to be this badge of honor, right? Hey, you what, what was the slope? Uh, no, we'll occasionally get asked that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's pretty funny, is it? Because uh, you know you get greens committees and everybody that you deal with. There's there's always a few people that say, okay, well, Matt, and these these things you're going to do is the slope of the golf course going to go up or down? and my answer always is I have no idea and we don't think about it at all. Right. It has nothing to do with it, but there used to be this badge of honor of saying, um, and funny enough, we were just talking about some Pete Dye courses. You know, I think at the time, you know, black wolf run might've had one of the highest slopes in the country, that kind of thing. Right. If you played the all the way back teams and it was this, Oh, the aura that went with it to say, Hey, you know, this is a place you need to go to. And, and the, the difficulty of the golf course, you know, equated to quality. Right. And, and I think even when you look at, um, you know, whatever top hundred lists and, and things like that, there still is a bit of, uh, this difficulty, you know, equals quality. Now, given some of these places are difficult, but they have a tremendous amount of architectural appeal, right? Let's, you know, we'll just use an obvious example, like Pine Valley, right. And, um, it, you know, difficult golf course, but it can be playable if you move up. And, but, uh, you know, it's day to day is a really difficult place. Um, and I think that the other part, that's a big difference between the clients that we talk to now and what the trends are now is that, um, at least the the way I look at it is there's a big difference between a place you want to play once a year, maybe once a month, you know, that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and the place you want to play every day. And we really stress that to say, Hey, we want to design a golf course here for members, municipal that, that, you know, they have the same same goals. You want to come back every day. You're having so much fun. You want to come back and do this again. Not, you know, and this is obvious. feels like it's obvious now. wasn't obvious then, but uh, is it, you don't want to get the crap beat out of you. What do you want to come back out for and do this day after day? um, and have the longest round, lose a ton of balls, you know, shoot 115 every day, that sort of thing. The, the enjoyment there, you know, for the, like we said, the person kind of paying the bills at 15 to 18 handicap, it's not there. You know, it's in, you look back on, on you know, the projects that, and some of them that I've worked on, you say, God, it's kind of a crazy approach, you know? Um, you know, and it just makes so much more sense today on some of the, the things that are being talked about. The, so. the
0: gold standard in architecture, aside from, you know, this small group of maybe architects or clients who who truly are going to, like, host a tournament and really get that whistling yeah. straights level uh, product, the gold standard mm-hmm. is always the, you know, the, the cliche, you know, you want to build a golf course where... Uh, the average player can get around and the the grandparents can play, but also has enough interest to hold the attention of a really good player. I mean, some, you know, you think of like St. Andrews that, that, you know, that does it Royal Melbourne does that. Uh, There are other golf courses that do it, but it seems like for being a stated goal of almost anybody who's ever designed or built or hired somebody to build a golf course, if that's your model, it seems (laughs) like we get there so infrequently.
1: Agreed. <laughs> no, I totally agree. It's one of the, the lo- biggest lies in all of our golf course architecture is, uh, and you just see it constantly in magazines and everything, and I've probably have given this quote at some point, but it's that we're building a golf course here that's going to be enjoyable for members, but challenging for the best players, yeah, right? there it is. In reality, that is extremely hard to do, right? And I think if, we're, if anything, if we're going to err on the side of the projects that we're looking at today, uh, we're going to err on the side of Hey, we want to have all these unique features and, and do all these things to really grab your interest And you know when we look at it today it's really far more on the the end of uh, of playability and enjoyment for the 99 percent. and you know we certainly don't ignore that one percent right and um you know whether that's hey maybe there's a back tee we can add here or there that doesn't break the bank doesn't change the golf course fundamentally maybe there's a few pin positions you can think about that you know are for a particularly a little bit more difficult that sort of thing but you know, uh, and you'll hear it that we say this in a presentation all the time and you'll hear more than once from me today, but the, the character variety interest is at the top of the list. And if you have all these really quirky, fun features that make the golf experience really memorable, um, that you play a lot of different shots throughout, um, that is far more important to us than, Hey, that was the most difficult golf course I played this year. Or, or, you know, you get the one handicap that came out and said, "Boy, that was super challenging. I love it. I want to come, you know, beat my head in every day to go do this. It, it's really not as high in the list. Um, you know we'll have oh let's say uh not too long ago i was giving a, a presentation to a group of superintendents and someone asked in back of the room and we got done and said well with the golf ball going so far today and you see everything that you know everyone's worried about uh you know dustin johnson hitting in 350 yards or whatever what are, what are you doing in this project to do that and my answer is zero
0: right nothing but nothing it, at all
1: nothing <laughs> nothing so yeah, and it sounds like a crass answer or kind of ridiculous but it's it's true for most people, all these advancements in the equipment and golf ball haven't really resulted in the regular player hitting a tremendous amount further. Now, maybe it's a little easier to hit it, and the golf the game has become easier because club head is bigger, equipment's more forgiving, all that—all really positive, great. But for the you know regular player, uh, it, it just doesn't have those big leaps and bounds of, of distance, and so distance is way down the list, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the other thing that used to be, I think, really judged too was uh, get to the course somebody flips open the card and says, wow, this place is only what back to you, only 6,400 yards. You know, w- what is this? Right. Um, and I, I think the good part is I think that's slowly becoming less of and less of an issue. And it's, you know, it's what's, what's the golf experience like, right. And, and not, uh, what was, what's the card, what's the slope, all those things. Right. I think that's all becoming quite secondary now. And it certainly is for us on the design side. Now from the consumer side, I think the positive part is that it's kind of following suit for the regular golfer. So,
0: yeah, I think there's always been maybe the majority of golfers who looked at it and, and chose the correct set of tees. But I think mm. what's maybe changing more than anything now is that, that subset of golfer who wants to back up and play from, you know, they, it, it's, it's, a, it's like a badge of honor to play from like the back yes. tees. I think that person <laughs> oh, is. is always going to exist and they're going to do that. But now yes. they don't drive decision making as much as they used to. I don't, I don't I, think they have right. as big I of think, influence in the market.
1: Yeah, it's, it's less and less. I mean, that person's still there and certainly, um, you know, the, that, that smaller group, um, is quite vocal in a lot of, let's say in a private club situation, usually quite vocal. Um, and so, uh, but you're right. In general, they had, I think, less and less, um, influence, which is, uh, yeah, super positive. You're right. That, and then, mm-hmm. again, it's not to ignore that group. Um, I think in any real definition of playability, um, it's, you know, creating a golf course that, uh, all skill levels will enjoy, right? That's kind of how we define it a little bit. And, you don't want to leave out that 1%, right? You don't want to not consider them. Um, but certainly it's if you make all the decisions for that group, uh, I think the the design and the, the enjoyment and, you know, financially and long term, the golf courses uh, are not going to do well.
0: So you mentioned you grew up playing municipal golf courses mostly, and they were mostly yeah. Parkland style golf courses. Yeah, what? What triggers you? Like, what flips your switch on when you're playing golf? Is it still that environment? Have you changed uh, as you've been in this business and matured? What What do you like to do from a personal level on a golf course? What do you like to see?
1: Yeah, I think yeah, uh, I, I think there's part of it, and I mentioned it. You know that uh, growing up in that kind of Parkland setting, very few lakes anywhere on the on the golf courses. You know, maybe there's one, and that's irrigation link. That's it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, cool season grasses. That's really what I'm gravitating back towards, you know, whether that's just, you know, hey, this is what I was used to growing up and there's just some, and and I've kind of figured that out over time, right? Uh, That why does, why does this golf course appeal to me and other ones don't? And uh, so I think there's, that's kind of a base that I think is there, but I think uh, over time, well, I know over time, certainly appreciate um, a lot, uh, you know, more different golf and over time, I really start to appreciate, certainly as I get older, golf course that plays drier and firmer and faster and that that's part of probably what gets me a little bit closer to really seeking out uh sand, ba- sand based sand links golf um and not as much on the uh, parkland side i mean i love the parkland setting if you have enough width uh there's a real like comfort to enclosure sometimes right and there's a real raw exposure to treeless landscapes right you know i up in colorado you know what i'm talking mm-hmm. about where it can be very raw and open and windy and you know some of the nicest places to be in the world whether it's a uh, sand dunes in ireland or you know uh, you know the mountains in colorado when it's nice weather there's no better place but when it's terrible weather there's no worse place right exactly <laughs> and uh so sometimes the the parkland setting has a little bit in between but i think over time what i've not enjoyed as much with parkland golf and this is not just me but other people as well is that the, the maintenance that it goes with it and and often with the heavier soils um, growing up in Wisconsin, there's really only one sand belt area and that's where sand valley is located, right? Mm-hmm. So you're growing up on topsoil, clay soils, that sort of thing. And, and, uh, the trudgery of wet golf, hit your drive, splat, hit your shot under the green splat, uh, over time feel like I, that's golf. I just do not enjoy anymore. And to try to seek out, you kind of get spoiled because once you start seeking out the, the firm, fast, fun golf, whether you do a banded dunes trip or, um, you go you know, do a trip like, you know, last summer, if anybody who went over to uh, Scotland and, and did a trip there with the big drought, once you get used to that kind of golf and the, all of the really super fun things that go with it, God, it's tough to go back, you know, <laughs> it's tough to go back to the, you know, um, you know, to the part of the country, you know, let's go to the Southeast, right? It, it's tough to find, you know, maybe there's times of the year, maybe winter, maybe winter when it's not, Not raining. It's tough to find the dry, firm golf courses, and unfortunately, I think for the most part, it's it's you know maybe this is agronomy. It's partly soils, of course, right? All those things depends on what the weather's been that year. But I gravitate back to that probably just from memories and you know what a childhood to be able to drop off. You know, my brothers and I get dropped off at the municipal golf course, and then later on when we get to be a little bit older, my parents uh, joined a private golf course. But uh, probably just all of the good memories of childhood of. You know, kinda of nostalgia, right? You know, all those kind of things that, that kind of creep in there and, and do those things. So I, I enjoy both of them. I think probably my least and this isn't again anything too controversial, but my least favorite golf is, you know, go spend a week in Florida and play between the houses and the lakes and <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's not it's not golf, you know what I mean? It's not it's it's not the kind of golf you want to go and, and, and go play for very long, yeah. that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Well uh, I mean your old you firm is involved yeah. in a lot of that. Of course. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, and over the years I've worked on, you know, many projects in Florida and other places around the world where, you know, the residential is a big component and, uh, you know, the golf course has not driven, uh, the you know, and it's, you know, this sounds obvious, right? But from a developer's point of view, the golf course does not drive the profitability of the project. And so, you know, and, and this is, I think, a, a, a pretty fair comment to say is that when the golf course becomes secondary, um, there's obviously a lot of compromises that are made. Um, for the benefit of real estate and the detriment of the golf, you know, and, and it's not just that, uh, you know, that, the golf course, uh, golf courses that are built within residential communities are automatically going to be, you know, crap. Um, it's just that generally the way most of the land planning goes with, uh, between the, the golf course architect and at least traditionally, um, and the developer, uh, is that, you know, that frontage lake frontage frontage to homes, uh, is the premium right? So you end up with a lot of single loaded, maybe if you're lucky, double loaded holes that, uh, that go through there. And it just detracts from that experience. Right. I mean, and the, the opposite of that is the, the kind of golf I grew up playing, right. And get dropped off the municipal course. It's all core golf, right? It's just golf holes around you. There mm-hmm. may have been some development on the edges. That would be it, you know, whether some roads or houses and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's just such a contrast, right. You know, because the other big thing out there, I think is that most people these days are seeking out golf experiences right and i think golf is kind of catching up a little bit to like the hot the rest of the hospitality industry in terms of uh how we talk about it and you know how we think about it and what how we design and and that's from when you start to get to the golf course to when you leave you know what's that experience like and it doesn't have to be you know the the, the latest troon golf you know managed place where there's 10 people at the backdrop taking your bag that kind of experience i'm not talking about that i'm just talking about Please, some no. kind of authentic no, we do no, you know, we want authentic experiences that are, hey, you go there and this is there's all of these things that are really grounded in a sense of place to where you are, right? That you really feel like, hey, I'm in Wisconsin or hey, I'm in Georgia or mm-hmm. hey, I'm in Colorado. There's all of these kind of aspects, you know, we just finished up a, a, a renovation of a, a course up in the mountains in Colorado and, and it's it everything about it feels mountains and you know southwest colorado and ranch and everything right and they get so many of the details right and it just makes such a big difference right in terms of um you know your experience for the day right is how do you get that experience right and certainly it's not just from the first tee to the 18th green i think that's traditionally where the golf course architect has kind of been siloed into this you know certainly in development planning right and whether you get into housing and that kind of stuff you get siloed into well this is your purview uh, then, when you get around the clubhouse that 's an architect's purview, and then certainly the planning to come into the to the development well that 's that 's part of the civil engineering and land planning and that sort of thing and you know you just worry about this part um, and I think that 's the other transition at least we've made and what I think we do a little bit different from some other people, not everybody i 'm sure other people are participating in the same kind of thing is that we 're getting involved in all of it right is that we want to be involved in site furniture and Hey, what's the planning around the clubhouse and how are the features and what's the circulation and how close can we get up to the clubhouse and do some more traditional, uh, design components that would have been kind of turn of the century. Uh, what, what's that experience when you come in and you drive in, right. You know, all of those things, uh, they all matter. They all kind of add up right to when you leave, Hey, what was your day? Like, do you want to come back again and do this? And like I said, it's not, you know, it's not the. You know, hey, there were there were ten caddies, and you had to tip five people, and it's all that kind of stuff. It's it's really all the other smaller details that it's a lot more passive.
0: I think that's where we've where we've moved importantly in the last decade or maybe twenty years. But golf courses now, at least the good ones, the ones at the at the top of the game are expressions of their place more than they were for the previous 30 or 40 years or whatever. I mean, yeah. that's the that's become kind of the name of the game is to create a golf course that's reflective of its environment and you, and it, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be try to some, be something else that's competing with that environment. And I think that's where yeah. so much Florida golf historically has failed is that even in Florida it it so rarely reflects its environment. It reflects a manufactured environment. You know, yep. look a lot when you go along the coast of Florida, as you well know, there's not a tremendous amount of diversity. You get inland away from the coast, and you've got some really nice ecosystems and different things mm-hmm. going on. But, it, but even then, instead of so many of these developments embracing the the coastal Florida culture, they just sta- you know they stampeded over it and just like laid down you know miles of infrastructure and concrete, and then the Gulf yes. was was you know, added as a afterthought in, in so, so many cases,
1: but when, yeah, yeah. the developer looks at it as a blank site you know, they look at that and say, well, there's nothing where, by the time we do the earthworks and we build the roads and put in the infrastructure, well, let's just wipe it all out. Right. And they don't, there isn't too many, unless they're forced to with wetlands and things like that. Um, it becomes kind of a blank slate. And then once you go blank slate, yeah, most of your character and things to draw from are gone. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How how conscious of, of that, Dynamic were you when you were working with Norman and and working in a place like Florida, knowing that the golf was at the service of the the overall development and it wasn't the maybe the it wasn't given the primary focus that maybe it should have.
1: Yeah, I think you know in the in the planning stages, you know, you try to work as hard as you can to get uh, at a minimum try to get shared corridors. So a shared corridor would be uh, two holes as opposed to one, um, and you know, it really depended on some of the densities and you know some of the physical attributes that are there. But the more you could do that, um, the realities of it is that you know a lot of the the fill for all the pads came from all the lakes. They were also the fill for the golf course. Um, so there and there's also all the stormwater management would occur on the golf course, right? Um, and so that drove a lot of you know lakes, and obviously then there's a aesthetic portion of that as well that went with it. Um, I think the parts that would try to get to some of the uh, ecosystem and some of the things that are there that they did a good job with when I was there is they usually uh, took a native palette and stressed using a native palette for all the revegetation of the golf course. So if there was a site that was, let's say, a carrot farm in Parkland, Florida, which is a project I worked on, um, and there's nothing there, uh, how do you go back and landscape this golf course and what's the theme and how do you do this? And um, I think something, you know, a good a good stance that the firm had was uh, we're going to use a native palette throughout. Um, we're going to really steer away from exotics and ornamentals. And uh, let's do some research into what would have been here before in terms of that palette of, of, of plants and let's plant that back. And I think that's probably about as good as you can do, right? You know, in terms of when you start out with that kind of, you know, blank slate, if you will, Um, and what you can protect. Um, And it's just the realities of those kind of projects, you know, in terms of, you know, are you able to protect some of the things here and there that are, you know, part of the existing features? Um, The only way you'd be able to protect some of those existing features is somehow, you know, capture them inside the golf course and protect them once they get, you know, as part of the development, uh, the nature of, you know, home home development in, I don't care if you're in California or Florida or in between is that, uh, you know, those areas where the home sites go, you know they get graded out 100%. They get filled, you know, to get up to fill levels for floods and all those kind of things. So it's a challenge, there's no doubt about it. Um, and you know, I think the the honest answer is the development wins out. You know. So
0: that's a sto- that's a story of that era, you know. That's yeah. that's, that's, what, that's what history history yeah. understands that. I always thought your sure. old firms designs the actual the golf features were very intriguing. Most of the time there was especially, you know, I played most of the stuff you guys did in Florida and there's a Uh very, there's a very beautiful, beautiful voluptuous flow to the fairways. And, you know, it was sort of like that Australian aesthetic with broad, Uh you know, shaved fairways. And a lot of the greens kind of had that bubble up ripple effect with the kind of the, crowned edges and a lot of chipping swales and uh the mixture the mixture of of sand textures with the with open areas and then more formalized bunkers you see some some sod wall faces like down at tiburon and just like you see here up at uh sugarloaf and the the actual interest the architecture and the featuring was very interesting i just i always you know you always wish that you could just see that on a on a site and just let the architecture shine but it was so hard to do in in that economic environment i think
1: yeah, absolutely, and you know, just when you look at the flow of development golf, right, and, and kind of how you experience it, you're going to experience it always in a cart. Uh, chances are you're going to get somewhere along the routing where you're going to have to go through a bunch of houses across the road, get to the other side, those sorts of things, and you know that's where some of the routing things and the experience part just start to get so disjointed, right? So even if you can put up with the hey, we got a wide enough corridor and we can kind of separate ourselves from the homes and those sorts of things, you know, some of the transitions and things that are of really exceptional golf, right? The golf that you say, like, this is really incredible golf, usually has this, like, seamless, really cr- close transition, yeah. you know, green to tee and those sort of things. So you miss out on all those opportunities as well, beyond just even the, the aesthetic portion of it. Um, on You know, generally, not too many of them rewalking, walking, right, because of that reason. And, you know, the fundamentals, I think, of, of a lot of the, the golf, uh, I think, remain the same. And I think the opportunities, if you look at some of the really early stuff before I started working there that, that Greg had done, um, they really took on a lot of the aesthetic and the design components that Greg would have been familiar with from Australia, right? Um, look at like early medalists that they did with Pete and some of those things is that it was all fairway, right? He would have been kind of tip of the spear for all that, where it was, it was only all fairway cut. They did sod wall bunkering. It looks, you know, basically in a, you know, to have a sand belt look and that sort of thing. And I think there was an opportunity in those early years to take that as a strong identity and continue that throughout. And that didn't really so much happen. I think it changed. But you know, I think the other part of the strength I think of of some of the better designs that, that Greg has worked on is that he did have the ability to adapt and change and projects here didn't look exactly like projects there. And you know, they changed whether you're out in, you know, Northern California on a project mm-hmm. in a vineyard, you know, that project might look a little bit different obviously than, you know, hey, you're on you're in Dunebag in Ireland, right? To to adapt and try to have and those are kind of some extreme examples, but even project to project to say okay, we're going to have this one look a little bit different from the other one. Uh, I think those are the the times that things got, uh, you know, a little bit more interesting uh, than the, you know, and and everybody has some of these, right? And, and as far as some of the signature architects that when they get a little more cookie cutter and stamp it out, and, and as you talked about before with sense of place, when you take a photo of what, let's say, a golf hole or where it is, I think the really strong, you know, architecture and the strong golf courses have a lot of sense of place. You can look at them and say, oh, I know where this is that doesn't happen as much when you start to get into they feel a little more stamped out in, into a residential development, right? You could say gosh, this could be anywhere. Yeah. You know, yeah. where, where is this photo from? You know, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah. So, so I
0: was thinking about Tom Doak recently and flipping through some of mm-hmm. some of his stuff and and I came across uh, his confidential guide for his, and looking through his South America courses and I came across yep. something I wasn't familiar with called a place called Elersina. Yeah. And speaking of ground contour and yep. and just a topic that I speak about a lot, and others do too, but yeah. I speak a lot about is unconventional courses and, and the possibility yeah. of, of taking <laughs> golf to the people in a new way. Now, this is a, this is outside of Buenos Aires. It's a small, yep. privately owned, very upscale uh, project. Yep. Oh, but yep. explain what Alersina yep. is, and then maybe we can talk about what lessons we can take from that and if, if there's a, yep. another application of that style of project
1: yeah i think you know uh so a little bit of background about the project you know i guess to start out super fun you know the fact that i even got to pitch this opportunity and then I found an owner that wanted to do it is incredible right so um maybe a little bit in like that uh um in Doak and doke his his uh tom's reversible golf course um up in michigan this is an idea that that i've had for a long time and and just trying to find the right client and somebody that would do this right mm-hmm. and uh and take this sort of thing on and, and obviously would need to adapt project to project so um I got involved in this project uh, by uh, a recommendation um, from a friend of mine down in Argentina that I worked on a project down there for Greg, uh, his name is Marcos Clutterbuck and Marcos is really plugged in on, on the golf scene down there and he's a developer and there's a project that they're doing out in Patagonia called Alda Sofia and a really, really cool course and that's one of them that actually Marcos took Tom Dope to for the confidential guide including El Ersteenum. and they've only built their nine holes out there but really great sites in the mountains in Patagonia, fabulous place. And uh marcos called me up and said hey i have these friends who are thinking about doing kind of a private golf course um, they're all polo players uh, so half of this relationship is a group of professional polo players that own a, a big polo estate and then the other half is an australian billionaire that owns actually the property that the golf course is on and they decided hey we want to we want to do a little private golf course right here so that when The Australian billionaire guy's over, he wants to play some golf, and then all the polo player sons that are there, they're all super into golf, right? They're nuts into golf, and they wanna do their own little golf course. So there was a uh, a local person that they had uh, started talking to that drew up a little plan for them that's a local Argentine architect, and um, Marcos had gone over to see them and said, Oh, you know, I think this is, you know, that may be an option, but I think there might be some better options out there. And, you know, I have a, a friend in the States, you know, Matt Dusenberry, and he's starting his own firm, and I think he might have some interesting ideas of what to do with this plot. And so they had two polo fields there that they were going to say, well, take these two polo fields out and a little bit of a paddock, some horse grazing area. And it totaled maybe about 28 to 30 acres, and it forms this. Uh, deliberate kind of L shape and it's a really cool setting because it's also uh, framed around the outside 100% by these really mature London plane trees and kind of a double LA right so it's quite almost like architectural engineered uh, space that it's that exists inside of and they brought me down and said you know what do you think and so you know I, I had kind of had this concept and idea for a while and just wanted to have the right client and the idea is basically all right you're gonna have a private golf course on this 30 acres what's the best way to do this or what, what to me is the ultimate in private golf experience. And then I would think about, you know, doing the research for went down there is to say, all right, well, what's the other stuff that's out there, right? You know, if somebody's done a three hole golf course up in the Hampton somewhere, right? Someone's done a, even their own private 18 hole golf course. And to me, the, the, that all, if I'm the, the owner of that, right. And I say, Hey, I want kind of this, I want to be able to do whatever I want. So that's the idea, right? Is that when I step foot out on here, I want to play any direction. I want to be able to do whatever I want. I want to make the golf holes, right? I don't want to be structured into the, the 18 holes that a third-party architect put together for me here, right? Um, and so that's really what spurred this on. And, and I think the closest example that we could really come up with, uh, although we hadn't really thought about it at the time, and I had never been there, is the sheep ranch, right? right and yeah. that is a similar concept, but that has a lot of contour on it. And we really thought it was an advantage on this property um, as you imagine, polo fields are dead flat, right, or, or 1% side slope. Um, most of that plateau in Buenos Aires that kind of goes down to that river delta, it's very flat in general in that region, very little fall. Um, and we thought that was actually one of the strengths is that this is going to keep all these sight lines open, right? So if you want to play any direction that you want to go, there's a good opportunity to be able to kind of see that direction and pick your different way to play. So then we sat down and, and we looked at this property and said, okay, what what's an opportunity here to um, – Uh, to make this where you could do anything from grab two clubs, you know, and just play green to green and just hit 80, 90, hundred yard shots to, Hey, I want to play like a structured 18 hole golf course. If I want to, that comes out to like par 71 and it's, you know, 6,200 meters. And, and uh, so we found a way um, to make all that happen. But I think still the, the, by far the most fun part about this is, you know, you go out there with your buddies, you drop a couple golf balls and you say, we're playing to this green. And so the way that it, it was ultimately laid out it ended up being nine greens, but that really has nothing to, to do with like nine holes or anything. It just happened. That was kind of a happenstance. The greens are mostly in the corners of the property. You know, as far as distances, uh, you can play corner to corner in the long corner and so just over 600 yards. Um, and then you can play absolutely any variation of anything in between. Everything is known as fairway. Uh, so it's a totally open field. Um so it has some reminiscent of like an old course, right? You know, in terms of you kind of pick your line and where you're gonna play and there's hazards that are out there that are some are visible because they're gonna be playing your direction, you know, bunkers. Um and then some are will not be. You'll play the opposite direction, you won't be able to see them. Maybe like an a la twelve at an old course, that sort of thing, right? And then the green sizes in general have quite a bit of contour. And we also set them up that if you want to put two pins in all the greens just for variety. Um, you can play back and forth, let's say the same green and go to a different pin the next time. Right. That sort of thing. The entire thing is, like I said, is mown uh, closest fairway. It's all Bermuda. It's really a super interesting process and great place the um, the grounds crew that they have there. Um, I had no, I, well, I didn't know anything about polo before I got there. Uh, it's all pretty incredible. They take care of their fields. Like, um, almost like you would take care of a, a high end fairway at any golf course in America. Mm-hmm. They top dress it. They, they mow it to, um, under a half inch. Um, they spray it, they keep all the weeds out, they keep all the po out. They do all these things in all Bermuda, right? So we actually just took the Bermuda from the existing polo fields that they had at, and on the other parts of the estate. And we sprigged it all and soldered it all for the golf course. There was like almost no cost for that part of it. The greens are all bent grass. You know, I think there's about, gosh, there's gotta be, um, you know, it's not as much as an 18 hole golf course in terms of total square feet of greens. Um, But it's probably somewhere between the 9 and 18-hole golf course in terms of some of the big kind of double green features, that sort of thing. Um, And then the idea, too, is if you're going to play this day after day and a whole bunch all day long, you want to have a lot of interesting contours on the ground plane that are all mowed tight and going into the greens because you can kind of go a little bit more severe, right? It's not re- you know, as the term, the Kaisers like, use. not, it's not retail golf, right? You're not, you don't have to get somebody around in three or four hours to play golf, that sort of thing. You can kind of do some really unconventional kind of wild things. And it's, Hey, it's, it's just you guys playing. There's no fair or unfair. There's no, you know, it's going to be slow, that sort of thing. Um, and it's just really absolutely the most fun thing going. If I had unlimited money and it, the crazy part is it's not even that expensive to build. And it's also not that expensive to um, uh, to maintain. They maintain this with three guys, right? And the way it works in Argentina, it's pretty interesting, is that the, the three guys that are there are just three guys that work at the uh, the rest of the polo fields, right? They're not specialized in golf courses. They don't know anything about golf courses when they show up to this. And there's um, and this is quite common there is they'll have an agronomy person that's educated in the United States. The, the person we have to be friends with down there, his name is Alejandro. Ali went to Clemson has a PhD in agronomy and turf science, and he'll go and he'll, he'll consult at 30, 40 golf courses, him and a couple of his partners. And so they have qualified agronomists. They come in and they set up the program. Uh, they train the people, um, they make regular visits. And so they maintain all of this, you know, 30 acres and, you know, a lot of green square footage and everything with three people. And that's it.
0: First of all, uh, the listeners can go to com and, and see pictures of, of Elder Stina. It's this, this concept is when I've I've sort of like imagined in my head or dreamed of but never really been able yep. to sort of actual visualize it or you know put it into context and when I was sure. when I looked at this and saw it I was like that's it that's sort of like this this ideal that is that is out there and can be done now you yep. had some advantages there because they were are you already had you know the even though it's just three guys they they mm. did know how to take care of turf, and you you yes. know you could use the existing uh, strains of grass to sprig and, and sod. But no it, what's the, is there an application of this that could we could carry over into like a public setting somewhere?
1: I think there is. And, the, the, and we've been trying to find a, a possible project to do this sort of thing, obviously. And it's tough to find the right, the right client to do all this, right? And is that I think, I think there is an open format to do this, right? I think the, the open format would be less open than this, of course, right? In terms of... Uh, you'd have to, uh, being you'd able have to, to define any
0: the, yeah, the, the yep. actual holes that day.
1: Yes, yeah, so you'd have to D. define D. the holes that day, but I still think there would be, let's say, and I, you know, for 18 holes, it would start to get larger and larger, but maybe it's something where it's a nine or a 12 hole concept, mm-hmm. right? And uh, you're able to do it on a pretty compact piece of property. And let's say it's not the traditional, hey, I need 90 or 100 acres to do this, you know, something where you could do this on, you know, a little bit smaller parcel. Um, and there may be some more, let's say, obstacles or features that are internal. And I think that would be favorable. This one happens to have no internal features and it works out well that you can play any direction and that sort of thing but i think that it would be uh to get some of that separation get some of that day-to-day flexibility in play it probably would be good to have uh let's say this you know let's say something a little bit closer to a sheep ranch where maybe there's a, a large ridge that goes through that maybe has native grass on it maybe there's a, a copse of trees that's there that you know one day you're playing around it this way another day you're playing around it the other direction coming back um, I think there's absolutely an application for doing that. And there's a simplicity to maintenance that goes with it, right? To say, all right, it's all the one height of cut, you know, or two heights of cut, I guess, right? Um, you know, fairway, surround, tees are all the same. You know, maybe there's a little bit of, of rough here or there and then green height and that's it. Um, it simplifies a little bit, you know, in terms of how you irrigate it. You just irrigate this wall to wall and, and you know, keep the edges the unirrigated, anything that goes native. I think there's definitely an application for that that gets to be like a retail um, or even a private setting, you know, maybe it's, it's even a, you know, an add on to a, a sand valley, right. To do something like this or abandoned dunes or one of those that's looking for a non-traditional golf component, you know, to be able to go and say, here's how it's set up today. You want to go play six more holes. Here's this really kind of wacky, really fun, you know, a traditional golf that uh, that you can go play and, and go play it in several directions and mm-hmm. hey it's this way today, come back tomorrow, it's gonna be set up reverse or you know, or it's gonna be set up totally different. And and that's the part too, is I think you can also just break apart from it doesn't have to be just played for reverse. You could go any direction. And, and would it take a lot of thought and you know all those things? Of course. You know, and how that all lays out, but I think it's it's really super fun. And you know, again, like you said, this one's not, you know, a public or, you know, to put people around it. But, you know, as far as you know, what what I would consider to be kind of the ultimate private golf experience, total control by the by the owner. Um, you know, I think it hits the mark, you know, right on. I think there's there's some modified version of there that you could that you could deliver to the public. And I think you need the right you need the right owner and you need the right piece of property to do it.
0: Hey, time for a quick breather and a quick message. I just want to thank everybody who's gone to iTunes and left a star rating and a review. I appreciate that. If you haven't done that yet, go to iTunes, click the subscribe button. Leave a star rating, maybe a quick comment in the review section. It really helps me out. And if you're on social media and you see a new episode of the Feed the Ball podcast released, if you just give that a bump or a retweet or a like or a comment, that's it for now. Let's get back to Matt Dusenberry. I'm... I have a Pollyanna view of this type of project and what it can mean to communities yeah. and, and golf in the future. And I, I realize that it's not as, you know, I, I can't just be a Pied Piper and, and blow my whistle and say, you know, we got to do this. We got to build these kind of golf courses. But th- yeah. the more we see these types of innovative ideas, the we move the ball down the field another yard or two. And if you think sure. about like the, the the possibility of this, yes, you'd have to find the right and I'm going to stick with the public side of it. And I'm going to yep. hammer that. It, you know, you yep. have to find the right municipality. Somebody who yep. who has you know thirty, forty, fifty acres or whatever, and they're yep. interested in developing it. You have to have the right ability to maintain it. You have to have mm-hmm. the right uh, population to make it worthwhile. But yep. it, it's possible, right? <laughs> Just tell me it's
1: possible. Yeah, absolutely. It, and the you and know, funny for enough, cost it, is it.
0: I, I mean, yeah. is it? You know, is it any more or less than building traditional golf? I mean, what are the cost no, considerations? No, I
1: mean, it, Yeah. Cost considerations, it's not going to be any more or less. I mean, I think there's some efficiencies to say, hey, you're going to spend less because you're going to do some shared fairways and, Mm -hmm. you know, some shared areas, you know, here and there that uh, from doing traditional tip to tail, you know, single routed holes with mainline and irrigation and the infrastructure that goes with it, you're going to have a lot of shared infrastructure. Right. And I think funny enough, I think the, the, the really attractive. Uh, and maybe this is something similar you have in your mind, and where this will work is that I think it works better in you know certainly more populated urban areas, right? Mm-hmm. And that areas where this can gotta be this green space uh, that that's that's in between there that you come out and, and again whatever maybe it's six holes that you play or twelve or something that fits into this plot um, and has all this flexibility and, and different ways to play it. it. You know it seems like those are the areas that uh, uh, it would be super intriguing. It would expose you know people a lot more people to non traditional golf. Right, yeah. is the idea that it isn't all about keeping score and playing nine holes or playing 18 holes. And it's about, you know, fun and going with your friends and getting out there and, and playing. And yeah, getting kids and, involved,
0: uh, you know. You yeah, can scull it right. around the golf course.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, you can hardly lose a golf ball in this scenario, right? You can, it, it feels like an area that's less structured and less uh, less about etiquette, right? And that's one of the, you know, that kind of dovetails into the oh, the putting course stuff too, right? Like the huge Himalayas courses and things like that in a public setting is that they're just they're nothing but fun right there's no etiquette kids can have fun go do it super avid golfers can go do it and they have a blast right and i think that's in the short term i they really see that's this kind of concept being uh executed super well and i mean it's everywhere it's done it's usually successful is that that idea of um you know the punch bowl or something like that right and you know putting those in in a municipal setting and something that's public access we're actually um Planning that in a, in a project in in Massachusetts right now and, and working with the, the municipality on it. And we think it's going to be an absolute home run. It's going to be basically on the doorstep of the clubhouse, um, public golf course that does a ton of rounds. And, uh, and to be able to introduce this is kind of that first thing to, to non traditional golf, mm-hmm. right? To be able to come out and say, hey, just go hit it around. Yeah, skull it, run around. There is no etiquette, it's no problem. It's a ton of fun and gets people out there and get interested in golf, right? So.
0: Well, what you, what you have done that has been an amazing success and is an amazing project is Keeney Park outside oh, of Hartford, Connecticut or in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, yeah. The first time I saw pictures of this golf course, I just I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was completely unexpected. I think Brad Klein mentioned it and I hadn't been familiar with it before. And I looked it up and yep. I said, I have not seen shapes like that on a modern golf course. <laughs> and, yep. you know, they're they're reverential to an old you know, kind of Victorian style of golf and shaping, but you have sure. to, you have to talk about Keeney park and how that project came and just, what yeah. <laughs> how can, and how can we take Keeney park and, and, and <laughs> you know, transplant it into a golf course near me.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Right. <laughs> hey, I wish you also had one near home as well. Right. I don't get out there often enough to go play, but uh, when we do, it's an absolute blast. And so we're fortunate enough to uh, um, be selected as part of an RFP process. And, um, And that, which is a request for a proposal. Mm -hmm. And I guess for those, you know, listening that that's a a public process where you uh, submit and then there's a group of people at the city that review everyone's submittal. And then there's typically an interview and then they select an architect out of that that process in that group, Uh, which is a whole nother topic and a long discussion is it's a whole process in and of itself. So we were fortunate enough to get selected out of of that. And as part of our consulting group, Brad Klein was part of our consulting group there and he lives just down the road. And so it seemed like a natural fit and there's a, you know, a historic component to this as well. And, um, going into this project, uh, I had not had a lot of experience, and my design partners in the project, um, you know, Tad Burnett, who I'd worked with in, at Greg Norman Design, and uh, a longtime friend of mine, uh, Jim McKenna, who now works with us as well, um, from the kind of superintendent construction side, when we got involved with that project, I had not had a lot of experience with historic golf courses and, and restoration, renovation, all of these kind of things, and we're going into it, and and we kind of solicited Brad, not only for the municipal side, and you know his his input as well into the process, but also to say, hey, help us guide us a little bit on this historical side, right? And it was, it's a really interesting process um, on the historical side, too, because what we found out over the last five, six years, and Caney Park being part of this, is that historic golf courses and you know restoration versus renovation and where projects fall in between is the spectrum is super wide, right? And so when we looked at Caney Park, we went and dug up all the old documentation. We We did a little bit of an autopsy on how it got from you know 1927 devereau emmet course to you know 2014 at the time right and and then the version that existed on the ground in 2014 and we, we found was uh the front nine was we believe was built by emmet the back nine we believe it was built by a local uh engineer there for the city of hartford that routed the back nine the routing may have been somewhat in place when Emmett was there and they just executed it that routing then subsequently changed uh, a little bit over time, uh its most significant changes were in the eighties. Uh, Jeffrey Cornish came in into some changes, and so it 's one of those where you walk out, you can clearly see the we 'll say the holes that are untouched and then the holes that have the shaping from the eighties on it right so one of the early decisions was, well, well of course, you know we want to and this is client driven as well is to say we want to recapture the historic field of this golf course and and any work that 's done here, we want to make sure that Uh, It's a bit reverential to the original design, but probably more importantly, that's thematically quite Emmett, right? It's thematically, you know, 20s and 30s design. And that's really what drove the decisions moving forward. And this is a project, good example that this is, you know, we call it restoration in terms of, you know, all of those ideals. But it's not the true term restoration in terms of we're bringing this exactly like it was back in 1927. Um, And that decision was kind of made early on. And I think it was a really strong decision. You know, it was a difficult one, but we talked with the client about it and said, look at all of this Emmet, you know, courses that are around, whether it's Hartford or Country Club of Farmington, or, you know, we did a lot of research into other projects he had done. And one of them that we had kind of settled on, that was really a big point of inspiration that we spent a lot of time on was at St. George's out on Long Island. And that's one of his kind of best works and um the the people that are doing the the project there over the years i think gil hansen done some work there and then the superintendent uh, adam jesse is doing a really good job and they've done some continued kind of renovation restoration of the original work there And we use that as kind of an inspiration and pushing off point point. and so when we go back and we look at the original aerials you know and i should say original aerials 1934 is the first time they can find an aerial of everything in the state of connecticut right? So if it's publicly, you can go find it on online and the whole state was taking aerial photos. So we have a 1934 aerial to start out with. And there was one bunker on the entire golf course at that point. Mm -hmm. And it was over on hole number two in the corner. And I think the only reason it was there is that that's a Sandy portion of the site. There's actually a sand dunes in the forest, uh, just Northwest of our project. And so a portion of this golf course is actually in like a Sandy Ridge and a portion is in kind of topsoil clay. And another portion is down in the floodplain. Um, so the attributes that were there, and we go look at all of this other really cool Emmett stuff, whether it's, I mean, even go to like Garden City, right? We spent some time there as well. And that had been changed a little bit by Walter Travis, I think, after, uh, subsequently after he did a lot of the work there. But it's, it has a lot of intricate bunkering, right? It's a lot of the kind of string of pearls or tile bunkering and, you know, a lot of cross bunkering. Um, he uh, embraced to a certain degree some template holes. Right. And we found that at Huntington on on Long Island and we found it in a few other places, a little bit of the template holes here and there. And I think that probably is a nod to some of his contemporaries where um, CB McDonald and some other people that he was either friends with or worked with. And we decided to take those ideals and really apply it to this project. And so as far as restoration or what we were going to protect, we wanted to protect the routing. That was a um, we thought that was a a good request from the owner. And we kind of adhered to that. some of the limitations there is, you know, there is, we're on the Northeast. Uh, there's a lot of trees in the site. Uh, there's a tree warden for Hartford. There's a tree warden for the city of Windsor. That's the basically how this project sits in there. Um, and so we had to be careful in terms of uh, tree removals. And uh, there's a whole application process and everything that you take out, you have to, you know, plant somewhere else, um, equal caliper trees and, and do all that. So um, we had tree removals that needed to occur, but we had to be, it, it was certainly not, um, You know let's say extreme example it's no oakmont right it's no hey we're going to come back in here and and the client had no appetite for that either right they said this is not what we're not deforest the whole site right you're not going to deforest because it's also part of a uh, caney park is also part of a large park i think it might have been one of the first parks in the country public parks in the country um and it was it was designed by the olmsted brothers which are frederick Mm Olmsted's sons and they were from hartford and they designed this whole huge park and and uh, the golf course uh, subsequent years later uh, was built into the park and it 's just off of you know a traditional sheep meadow, and that kind of goes into the tenth fairway and so there 's a lot of history with the park as well and so from the client side we had uh, our client um, was obviously the city of Hartford, uh, but one person in particular is tom baptist and and Tom was a great client uh, um, a golfer himself and a real pragmatist and and um, a, a real kind of visionary and and really got all the creative parts of the project and was super supportive of hey, we want to do this, we want to do this, and this is really out of the ordinary. It's the stuff that you're not going to see in municipal golf, and we really want to push the limits and, and give something really inspired here, and let's look at um, making an investment into this project that's this investment for the next 30, 40, 50 years, right? Let's rebuild all the greens. Let's do a new irrigation system. Let's uh, you know, put in additional drainage to what they have today and really embrace this as um, a model going forward in terms of what municipal golf can be You have this really good site. The ground contours on the site are fantastic. And there's a lot of, you know, 5, 10-foot elevation changes and maybe some a little bit more, and they're really, really appropriate for golf. And so most of our work was tee, bunker, green complex oriented and we preserved the rest and kept all the quirky humps and bumps and hey if there was a big ridge that came over the line of play and you couldn't see beyond it it stayed right i mean all the kind of fun stuff that they would have done originally right in terms of um how they would have built this golf course originally right the the uh they would have just built the features right everything else you routed appropriately so that you could use all the natural features in the golf course that's out there and things that years later
0: they would have knocked down or
1: removed correct yes (laughs) no question and, um, and so we really embraced it from that point of view. And so that we spent a lot of time looking at other Emmett work and we use those as pushing off points. So there wasn't any really like copying or anything like that, but it was really inspiration. And it said, okay, you know, we've seen this bunker in another golf course, let's do this here. And it's kind of a nod or reminiscent of that. And so there is a little bit of the mindset of, well, what would Emmett do if he was here today? And so, you know, and there's a little bit of template hole work there. And, and, um, it, it really, uh, you know, we think it's, it ends up being, um, really fun and in the heart of it it really starts in the green complexes and works back and there's a really interesting set of greens there and we worked really hard to uh, have a lot of interest um, have a lot of variety so it's a lot of mix of hey there's going to be some more subtle greens and then you're going to get to ones that are just wild right and then you're going to have some that are a little more calm and it's all part of that kind of experience that you think about for players right and how they're going to progress through this round and um, you know there's always the i guess that the down the what you want to avoid is, or at least what we're looking to avoid is 18 roller coaster greens. We don't think that's great or fantastic. And they, it has a weird, uh, effect of being almost unmemorable. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly we want to go into it with, and we had this, uh, this discussion all the way through and all the decisions we made as a group is to say, um, we're not dumbing this down. We are not going to come into this. And there's a few, a, a few minor things that we, that we compromised along the way because it is municipal golf, it's public golf, it's, you know, okay, you got to move rounds around here, that sort of thing, is that we're not going to dumb this down and say, ah, oh, it's a municipal golfer, the, golfers, the greens should just be kind of flat, tilt towards it, that's it. And a, a term that Brad would use and I always kind of liked was is being respectful of the municipal golfer and saying, we're, we're not just dumbing this down and, hey, you guys are only paying $45 a round, so you know, uh, you shouldn't expect good architecture, interesting architecture. And, um, hey, that's the purview of the private clubs, you know, not here. And certainly the kind of gr- golf that I grew up on, municipal golf, uh, extremely ordinary. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to be inspired <laughs> about in the architecture I know about part that. of it. Right. So, you know, and so to have an opportunity to deliver this uh, product to city of Hartford and to the residents and to the people there. And, you know, super satisfying project. Um, you know, Jim McKenna was on site full time. Um, I was on site pretty much full time with him. Uh, We did all the shaping of the features, and we had a local contractor and all those kind of things as well. Uh, Certainly in a municipal setting, you have a a general contractor. But the amount of people that would stop by, because the the golf course was closed. It closed for about 18 months. But there wasn't a day that went by that someone didn't stop up to the clubhouse, walk over and say, what's happening here? What's going on? And have a story for us about how they had been playing golf there since, I mean, we had guys that had been playing golf there for 50 years. Um, and I remembered when the park had like a zoo and a—I mean, they would tell us all this crazy stuff that was there. And the local people were fantastic, right? And you know, some of them a little bit crazy, some you know, all that kind of stuff. But it was super satisfying project in that you felt really connected with the local kind of avid golfers and the people that are out there using it. And you know, they couldn't have been more excited. They're like, "Oh, this has been neglected for years. This is fantastic. I can't wait for it to, um, you know, to get done." And we've had nothing but. You know, great positive feedback since it's been open, and the other the other things that go with it are you know it's doing a lot of rounds of golf. Um, you know, the, we'll take this last year; it was a really poor weather year um, out of it, but the previous year uh, i done over thirty thousand rounds. Uh, it's still very affordable. I think they're around $45 to walk, um, which I kind of have the opinion that they should charge more. It's in Connecticut because <laughs> um, <laughs> there is also a lot of pressure for this thing to, to make it be on its own and, and not be subsidized. Right. Uh, which is happens more and more these days, but it's also maintained very modestly, right? The way that this is, golf course is being maintained is, is pretty uh, non-traditional as well. And it has a lot of challenges to go with it, but uh, the city chose to, um, do a maintenance agreement with a, a local group called Gilmet Golf, and they basically place uh, a few uh, professional people on the site. So we have a, a superintendent, um, we have assistant superintendent, and then they share a mechanic between the two, and maybe a little bit of help from there. But all of the labor is uh, brought on from a local uh, nonprofit group that does a lot of the park maintenance and a lot of other things, and it's called the Knox Foundation. And the Knox Foundation, their, their goal is to um, take uh, local Hartford citizens, um, and kind of re enter them into the workforce. And they may be from uh, maybe something they've had in the legal system, maybe prison, jail, that sort of thing. And they're putting people back to work. And that's who comes out to maintain the golf course. These are people that, for the most part, there's a few return people that come back year after year. But for the most part, you get new people throughout the year that have never been on a golf course. Um, and that's who maintains it. So it, it's not, you know, and don't get me wrong, could the, the standard of maintenance sometimes be a little bit higher out there? Absolutely, but I think they do a very good job with uh, with the staff and the amount of people and the equipment and and the kind of what's presented to them there. Uh, the golf course is pre- often when we're there is presented fantastic. Does it get a little rugged around the edges? Absolutely, but I think that's also okay. It's part um, of public golf. You know golf how it's it, sure. public players yeah. should
0: be able to embrace that and say, "Well, this is the yeah. trade off."
1: It is, you know, the down the middle. It's great. Tees are great. Fairways are great. The greens out there are fantastic. The superintendent and, and do a really great job with it. And, and let's let's face it, you know, as much as I love to talk about architecture, and so do you, is that for the most part, um, and I think that's another, you know, part of this municipal uh, project as well, is that for the most part, people care about the maintenance and hey, what are the greens like? What are the tees like? What are the fairways like? Maybe secondary to that, how are the bunkers being maintained? That sort of thing. You know, we geek out and get super deep deep into the architecture most people probably aren't going to, you know, recognize that hey the ninth hole is a is a road hole template that goes right up against the clubhouse but i think the part that's really, you know, neat about it or interesting is that anybody goes out to play out there, they're a golfer, they may not be into architecture, they're going to recognize that hey, things out here are different. Things out here are really, oh, this is possible, that's possible. I've never seen that before and kind of capture their interest and their imagination and say, "Well, i want to do this again. Why would i go across town play xyz golf course that's just boring flat straightforward you know there's all this fun to be had here and you know when you embrace all the kind of classic architecture principles you also embrace you know being able to run the golf ball into the green and you embrace so many more golfers right they can play all these interesting shots and um and it kind of starts to narrow that divide between the really good player and the you know let's say the avid older golfer or even the higher handicap golfer that they can maneuver around the golf course and they can be hitting lower shots into the greens and, and all of those kind of things. And, and, you know, overall, it's just been a tremendously fun project and uh, had some stretches that are really challenging, right, in a municipal environment. But we're also very fortunate uh, to have a very good client, uh, well-funded, gosh, everything all the way throughout. They also renovated the clubhouse. Um, we had the opportunity to uh, work with a, a local landscape architect as part of our team. Uh, that did all of the land planning around the clubhouse. So we're able to do some really non-traditional things as well in terms of, well, I should say traditional things is what really the planning around the clubhouse, I should say, is that we're able to push features right up to the clubhouse. It's an old 1940s clubhouse that's that's uh, all brick, uh, kind of looks like a little bit of a Tudor style. Um, ninth green pushes right up to the back of the clubhouse. Um, first tee pushes right up to the back patio. Um, all, all the things that used to be really Part of, you know, particularly New England golf, but something they probably brought over with them from British Isles, that the golf embraced the uh, the clubhouse building. And it was kind of a buzz. And there's a lot of golf that comes right up to it and it rejects the notion that, you know, so much of the golf development's happened in the last 30 years, or maybe it's, you know, a little bit more towards, you know, not the last 10, 20 or 30 years before that, that the, the way to plan the golf course is uh, parking. first thing you come to is a parking lot. Then you go to the clubhouse. Then there's a sea of carts and then the first tee is way over here, and the ninth green is way out here, and the 18th green is way over here, it kind of rejects that whole kind of uh, scenario, and it's something that we really think is one of the best aspects of the project, Is this great, um, really human-scale feeling to when you get there, uh, and that's, you know, I think just another kind of wrinkle and um, some upsides and downsides that go with it, but uh, we were fortunate to have quite a bit of control on the projects. So we're also the prime, which is a little bit unusual. So the prime consultant, uh, they hire all the other consultants, uh, to work for them. And so we managed all the sub consultants on the project as well, which is a little unusual and a lot of work, but ultimately, you know, we think it was, it was worth it for the finished product. Right.
0: Well, I'm encouraged that you know, you said earlier you didn't, you know, you didn't have to, and here we're going to geek out on architecture and features a little bit, but sure. uh, <laughs> that's, what, that's what we're all about. But, yeah, you know, you course. didn't dumb it down. You, you put it out there, and there, and you look at the shapes, and you look at the slopes and uh, some of the mm-hmm. angles on things, and it's, it can be pretty severe, I'm imagining. You can get in some difficult sure. spots, uh, especially around the greens, yep. and it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a really attractive look. It does harken back to a previous age. But if you were going to design something that is that bold, And has that type of style? Do you have to couch it? Do you feel like you have to couch it in? Okay, well, this is an old style. and We're bringing back the style of the original architect. I mean, is it necessary to put it in a frame of reference for the player for them to accept it? Or could you get away with that type of featuring on a new course, for instance?
1: I think you can get away with that type of featuring on a new course for sure. Um I think uh it's probably a little more freeing. Um uh, to be fair, you know, again, we're just kind of taking inspiration from that time frame and we have the opportunity to go back and 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 uh say, hey, we're attached into this time frame, but we really had a tremendous amount of kind of open creativity and that's what really I think makes made that project a lot of fun for us. Um, you know, when we look at uh, renovation, restoration, those kind of things, um, I have not participated in a true restoration, right? To go back and say, all right, this golf course is going back to exactly like it was before. Um, in my mind, and not having gone through it, I feel like that may be not quite as fun as something like this, right? Um, is that it's a little bit more clinical, and it's a little bit more, you know, autopsy of what was there before and putting those things back together. Right. But I think that, you know, and From this is maybe somewhere in between. Yeah. I always so yeah, ask that, sure, not right? to interrupt, yeah. but
0: I ask that, yeah. you know, the guys who really specialize in restoration and yeah. I, that's what I often ask them is like, are you, does this satisfy you? You know, cause you're really, you're kind of just taking right. another idea. And, and it takes skill. There's no doubt it takes a tremendous amount no of skill. But are, no does that satisfy you as an artist? And they all say yes.
1: So I have to take them at their word. Well, see, I think that's kind of a lie. If I think if you got anybody to tell you the truth on that stuff, because there's a good friend of mine in Australia that I worked with and, and stuff, and he was sending me some notes the other day, and he's like, and he's never really worked a whole lot on renovation, restoration stuff, and he asked that question, and I think the real answer, or the answer I would tell you, is, hell yeah, I want to go do original stuff. That that is the kind of the mountaintop, right? And, yeah. and from there, and now. We, if you choose to do original stuff that is inspired and similar to a bunch of these architects of projects that you've worked on before, great. That's fantastic. But yeah, I, I mean, that's just me. I would say, uh, heck yeah, I want to do original stuff. And, and I think you can do original stuff. And I think we've shown that at Caney Park um, that's inspired by that era. And I don't think that there's any reason that you couldn't do that um, without the historical reference there on a new project to say, hey, we want to embrace these quirky aspects and we want to embrace these things and, and bring this into um, a new project. Um, you know, quite frankly, those sorts of construction techniques and those sorts of, um, you know, uh, whether it's the, the lines or the severity around the greens or the severity and shapes and everything, it often gets lost because of the way that golf courses are generally be- been built for the last 20 years, right? There isn't a lot of dozer work on on the work that we did at, at Caney Park. There's very little. Um, and that really, I think, shows up. It has more of a, you know, it's it's a lot of excavator work, uh, a lot of knuckle bucket work and stuff. So it feels more small scale. Yeah, small scale. Uh, feels, hand, it, feels feels more, it, feel, it feels more hand built. It feels more hand built when you do it that craftsman. way. And the stuff that's been done, yeah, more craftsman. And the stuff that's been done with a, a bulldozer. And there's some stuff we did out there with a the bulldozer. But... I, the stuff that we did with the boulders, I can go point it out right now, and I think it's the worst stuff on the project, and I'd go change it right now. So <laughs> it's, it's it's interesting that um, you know where that goes, and I think that's the challenge is when you go to these uh, new projects if you do not have an exceptional site and you do something from scratch completely, mm-hmm. is that it requires a tremendous amount of imagination and execution, and you see that you know go back to our beginning of our conversation um, to kind of show you what uh, somebody like Pete Dye, what they're capable of, right? They're capable of taking nothing and turning into that. And that, that's its own skill as well. You know, there's a skill to, you know, what, what I guess maybe, you know, Tom Doak would say, or, or Cork Crenshaw would say of how they approach a site that's supernatural and, um, how you execute it and execute the routing and execute the work. But there's also a real skill to, how do you take a site of nothing and make it into something, you know, and that's, um, and that certainly features like the ones at Kenny park, They would be great features to introduce to those kinds of environments.
0: So, yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, when you, yeah. when you get a site, you know, you get a coastal dunesy sandy site, you're you're really obligated to build a kind of golf course that's reflective of that nature. You know, you want to you want to play it down. You you don't want yes. to go stamping. It's like what uh, Ron Witten said about Sandhills when Dick Young's cap was yep. thinking about developing it. He was going to have Pete die come out because he'd worked with them before. And yep. Ron said, look, Pete's not your guy for this job. You know, he's a great at what he does, but he's not. I think we need to go a different direction for this particular
1: site. I think that's a fair, that's a totally fair uh, uh, thing. you're right, that Sandhills would not look like Sandhills at all today if Pete had worked on it. Right. Um, so and I, he, he has a much heavier hand, there's no doubt. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's a totally different look, but it, ultimately Pete's probably a little closer to like uh, a Tom Fazio in terms of I'm going to create everything you see. Right. Yeah. Um. And uh. And then we're gonna go from there. That sort of thing. And I think that's been. You know, there maybe there's a few exceptions to that. But you know, even look at a Whistling Straits that you might say, oh, that has more of that sandhill feel. Well, that's a hundred percent, you know, uh, manufactured as well, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting though because I, you
0: know, I guess we're going talking about Pete Dye again for a second. But y- if you think about like all the p- great projects he's had, I'm not sure he's mm-hmm. had a good site. Like he's never had a great. <laughs> I don't know that he's ever had a truly great site. You could say. You know, uh, Teeth of the Dog was a good location. You could say the yes. ocean course is a good location, but that was flat. You know, it's kind of swampy, yeah, too.
1: Yeah, um, Yeah, you both struggle to get views. Um, you know, certainly not the ones that are right in the ocean, but certainly something like uh, uh, the ocean course. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to be built up just to be able to see the water, yeah. right? And there's so much of the low areas that are there. Yeah, it's not – you're right. I don't, I don't know that – I can think of one that's really, truly exceptional. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I can think of like uh, French Lick down in Indiana. I think that site was quite good um, in terms of those rolling hills. But, you know, I, again, you can see his hand quite yeah, clearly on
0: and then he, paint, <laughs> he painted over it.
1: <laughs> yes. So I think that's probably a pretty good example that uh, even if he did have that incre- incredible site, I, th- I think he's going to do his own thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Just yeah, to kind yeah, of start enough. to
0: wrap this up, I st- last week I t- talked to Keith Cutton, and we got into the mm-hmm. discussion kind of toward the end of, the, of our talk about construction methods and he's a big proponent of the design build method and i asked him to kind of differentiate the the um, benefits of that versus the architect contractor method and we got into a discussion and it was interesting i got a lot of feedback from different people they thought that was an interesting conversation and what i realized is we 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 made it a little too black and white we needed to um, kind of talk about how there's a spectrum you have on one hand you know you have the extreme like you know, Bill and Ben and Tom, who the idea is, you know, their, their guys, their interns are creating in the field, they don't have blueprints, they're giving people the uh, opportunity to kind of freelance to a a degree, and they're just shaping Uh it organically. And and then then we also need to pull back and say, they all use contractors, there's a tremendous amount of infrastructure that goes into any golf course. So there's drainage, there's irrigation, there could be electricity, there could be, you know, tree removal, there's all these things that, Everybody does, right? But then, feature shaping—you have that, and then you have the old model, uh, the big firm model. We'll call it that, where you have plans yep. produced in the office, they're handed off to a contractor and executed, and the guy whose name's on the building, you know, shows up every couple of weeks maybe to move things around and check things off the list. But there's a tremendous amount of middle ground between those yes. two extreme examples. Where do you where do you put? Yourself on the scale, and maybe you could explain kind of what some sure. of that middle ground looks like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so in 2013, we had an opportunity to kind of start our own firm, and I, you know, kind of joined up with um, my two design partners, Tad Burnett and Jim McKenna, and uh, and we had an opportunity to kind of sit down and say, "All right, this is we can't we can't blame it on anybody else. We can't have any excuses. This is our own thing now. If we're going to do this moving forward, this is uh, we want to do things the way we want to do it. And and what's that going to be, right?" And so part of that is, um, how do we want to participate in execute projects, right? That's a big part of it, right? Um, and certainly project selection and all the things that go with it and only working on a few projects at a time, but they all kind of go hand in hand, right? Because if you're going to, if you're going to go towards the spectrum of more self-perform or hybrid self-perform, it, physically you can only do so many projects, right? Um, and so when we looked at it, um, you know, I've certainly participated in projects where, um, over the years where it's, and this would be the more traditional model of, You know, there's a general contractor for everything, site person, someone like myself that's there either part-time or full-time as a designer. And that's kind of, I think that's not even the one in the spectrum. The one in the spectrum is here's the plans, right? And I'll make a visit every, you call me up when four holes are rough shaped and I'm going to come out and walk those four holes. I'll give you a few tweaks and changes and then, you know, say grass it and like call me back again when it's four more holes. That's the one end, Mm -hmm. right? So the other end, if we say Cork Crenshaw is the other end or, or Tom Doak's guys or Gil Hans's guys and those kind of things, and maybe Gil Hans is a good example of that because they also have their own kind of mini construction company with Cape Land Construction and everything, um, we, we obviously fall somewhere in between. And we fall somewhere in between for two reasons, right? Well, the one is obviously uh, the amount of control that you have on the project. I guess there's three. The amount of control you have on the project by uh, being there every day, right? So all of our projects, there's somebody there full-time. Um, In the the last several years, it's been, on most of our projects, Jim McKenna is there full-time. Jim's background is the superintendent. He's been involved in construction, and he's a really good fit for these projects. And then I supplement those with... Usually visits, uh, I'll be there you know, every week, that sort of thing, depending on the scope. Um, if it's a lot slower pace or something, then maybe every other week, that sort of thing. Or we may have another project going on, and I'm full-time on that one, and we kind of go back and forth a little bit. So what ends up happening in those uh, areas is we're looking to have control over all of the day-to-day things and, so, uh, and executing uh, shaping there ourselves, right? If we're on-site, whether that's bunkers or... You know some dozer shaping and it really depends on the project and what's happening and what the scope is for that particular time frame it could be finish work right it may just be some smaller project things that are happening so there's obviously control usually have some form of a local contractor not always sometimes we work with the superintendent the club will get material direct they'll hire them they'll hire the equipment direct and they'll pay us as you know weekly or monthly fee to be out there doing that um you know for the the site work and so it's kind of self-controlled by the by the owner and let's say a renovation situation and typically on some smaller renovation work um and also a little sub for let's say some irrigation work that sort of thing subcontractor for that um and then as it gets bigger uh rely a little bit more on a general contractor to to execute more of that work uh in terms of some of the general things right whether that's it might be you know the owner doesn't want to uh purchase materials directly and they they go ahead and say all right want the all the ordering and the scheduling and everything to be on the general contractor they're going to put in drainage they're going to order materials they're going to do some of the more and i guess the honest answer is we're looking to dish off some of the things that are a little bit more mundane and and straightforward and do the stuff that we want to do right the creative stuff and i think that's the other part too is that it's quite self-serving right is that you want to work on the fun things right yeah. when you're out there um Digging a drainage line is no fun. Yeah, right? My, so, we, yeah,
0: my so, wife and I were yeah. lucky enough to be able to build our own house a few years ago. And oh, I so. didn't want to see like our know. our contractor, I didn't want I don't want to see him painting you know, the outside of the house. I want to see him working on my cabinets. You know, <laughs> I want to see the, some custom yeah, work from him.
1: <laughs> stuff stuff you can't do, right? right? Or or you choose not to do, or whatever, right? So and then I think that's that's all fair enough. And and sometimes the projects also get big enough. That's a good example of your house, is to say we we'll also will bring in some other people to work with us, right? Some other shapers and things, occasionally, where the project gets a little bit bigger, or um, even the local contractor that we'll be using, uh, they may have somebody with a lot of golf experience, and we say, "Yeah, perfect. You know, you, we're gonna we're gonna stake tees for you, and you're gonna shape tees, and it's gonna be you know like." if we on like a formal project they're flat pads and you know they execute some of the more kind of day-to-day stuff and and then they'll also provide labor then as well right so sometimes a superintendent and their crew will provide labor other times they'll have a local kind of golf gc that'll say oh, okay we'll also provide the labor and then the other thing that's you know kind of happened in the last five ten years is that there's also some specialty things that uh, these contractors the only people that are going to do it maybe it's better billy bunker right um, to have a local contractor come in and spray the spray the, uh, the liner on the rock and do some of those things, right? Um, so, as we move farther and farther at the spectrum to say, hey, you have your own little construction company, maybe you get labor that's hired direct, um, you do all the work yourself, you know, on the cork wrench iron, or somewhere in between. So, they, that, that averages control on what happens on the finished product, Um, you keep the project really, you know, on budget, on schedule, you're there day to day to control all those things. You also have a a tremendous amount of quality control when you're there and, and, you know, much like building your house, you kind of want to keep an eye on everything, right? Uh, it's the, the contractor's there to make money. I'm not saying they're there to, to cut, to not do things, but you also want to make sure that everything's being done correctly along the way. And you have a lot of vested interest that it's done that way. Right. Um, so the quality control part of it is a big part of it. There is a cost savings. Some people will tell you that the cost savings is tremendous by self-performing. It's not tremendous. It's not half the cost of, you know, bringing in a contractor, that sort of thing. Um, our experiences is probably somewhere uh, on the light end, you save maybe 10%. On the heavy end, you might save up to 20% by doing some kind of hybrid self-perform. And you're somewhere in between then from from there to kind of full GC and contractor and, and from there. And, you know, you can't replace, in our opinion certainly in keith's opinion and and why you know all the other guys do this is you just cannot replace uh the kind of enthusiasm and drive and creativity of being the uh you know the designer doer right um that you just bridge that gap and so there is no gap right and then also the part that you don't have change orders right or to a certain degree you don't have change orders you want to change something five times there's a little bit of time with it but you know, the contractor isn't crying bloody murder to say, well, we shaped all this. You guys changed it two more times and, you know, we want to charge you for this and this. So the owners also kind of feel good about that to say, hey, you know, this is going to get to where we want to on the finish line. But uh, we're going to save, you know, a little bit on hey, if we change it a few times. It's not the end of the world, you know, and that's what you want. Because yeah, as you, I think you probably have heard over and over again is that. um you know, this creative design process is really about editing and changing and proving. And, um, it just gets better and better as you work through it. And certainly for us, it's also collaboration, right? It's team and, you know, having people out there and reviewing it together and somebody working on this and bunkering and somebody working on this and you go review it and, and change it and have a lot of input. And, you know, we even get input, you know, obviously from the client, usually the client input is a little more broad strokes. Um, but it's kind of input from all the, uh, you know, all different parties on it. So, um, yeah. So, that's yeah. Kind so of,
0: the what you just yeah. described, the way you do it, would you say that I would hmm. say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's probably the way in 2019 most yeah. small firms or medium sized firms work. It's some some kind of a yeah. hybrid or someplace in between. They're not at out at the edges, and one reason is because we don't have mm-hmm. the, the 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 big hierarchical lo, uh, design firm doesn't exist the way it used to exist. So you're correct. getting less of that. Just hand them a roll of blue, blueprints, but most people are kind of in the middle range, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely, because it's also you know we're a really small company. We don't do a tremendous amount of, of work. We we do you know maybe a couple projects a year. Uh, the other wrinkle that's in there that people probably should talk about too is it's another way for us to make some money too. You know, yeah, that's uh, yeah. You know, I mean, that's what it's. That. So, I mean, you have to. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have a business if you
0: can't. Right, and you have yeah. to have clients who can pay the bills as well. And so that there's a little true, bit of client yeah. selection involved. I'm assuming.
1: No question. Yeah. The client selection and, and to be, when you, when you pitch the self kind of semi self perform or some of the hybrid self perform, it's a really nice fit for even some clients that say, Hey, we want to do some phase things over several years. And hey, this year we might only have 50 or 75 grand to spend and we want to do this green surround and bunker complex. And hey, when you guys want to come out for a couple of weeks in the fall, it, you know, works great for us. No problem. Whereas that does not really work very well for a big contractor to say, I don't even want to come in here and mobilize to do this, this you know, this work, you know, or, or I'll do it, but I'm going to charge you an arm and a leg fork because it it's so small. Um, and so that, that flexibility and kind of nimbleness is good too. So.
0: To me, I think it's interesting and, and important to have these conversations. I know if there's a, a certain percent of the people who aren't interested in this or they're gloss over, they'll fast forward to this or, but I, I think it's interesting to, and important to have these conversations about the way golf courses are built and the way things are structured, because it gives players, the consumer, the audience, uh, insight into the process and it might answer mm-hmm. some questions it might explain to them on some level why this golf course or this golf hole turned out the way it did and what's yep. different about this course that what feels different about this golf course what's this, the the vibe the character that I get that doesn't exist over here and once people understand how, the design and the golf holes and the golf course got to that place. I think it's just a piece of information that they can process and put into their evaluation of what they like and what they respect and what, what turns them on.
1: Uh, No question. You, I mean, certainly the more trained your eye is, you can tell exactly As we were talking about before. I can tell exactly the stuff that, you know, cany park that was done this way or that way. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, our, our preferences, uh, the things that look more craftsman and, and that, that finished product. Right. And I think as the consumer, maybe starts to understand how one, you know, product got built, they can appreciate, Hey, this is something that I enjoy more. This is the aesthetic that I enjoy more. And it's a better experience. I think you hit it right on is that you can start to get that separation of like, well, why does this one seem to be lacking in some of the details and some of the, you know, why, why am I not quite as excited to be out here, you know, playing this golf course? And why do I really like this one in terms of aesthetics, playability, character, you know, all the stuff we you know talked about before um, and how that translates. And yeah, I think it's helpful to know. Uh, how it got from a to z mm-hmm. so so you're six yeah.
0: years into your your own business now and yeah. you've done some we've talked about some of the work you've done it's very interesting i think you have a very uh, kind of keen cool outlook on design from based on on what we've seen but how does it how does the the business i guess the the architecture industry i hate to use the word mm-hmm. industry but how does that feel to you from from your vantage point what are you seeing right now and and what's what are you kind of project into the future are we in a good place is your are you in a good place do you see opportunity out there are we moving in a certain direction
1: yeah i think uh you know it I, for the first six years i mean i my typical answer when someone asks me say well how's business what's going on well here's what i would answer is it could be busier it sure could be a lot less busy right so um i think for from the architecture point of view and to say it could be busier hey i'd be loved to be working on all the projects that are. Core Crenshaw, or Gil Hans have going right now, that would be busy to me, right? I mean, that's where we want to be. That's where we want to go, right? So anything short of that is, hey, we'd like to be doing more projects.
0: There aren't that many people that are that busy. So <laughs> right.
1: Right. You're, you're not <laughs> so alone. We start to look at the reality of what, you know, and I think that's what you're asking, the reality of uh, what's our project workflow look like, right? I mean, how does it go from year to year? And to be fair, it kind of has some ebbs and flows, right? I mean, there's periods where real busy and things are going on. Our busiest period is going to be starting here in April and go to the autumn and our winters are slower, right? You know, there's uh, projects are, you know, we have a little bit of planning, budgeting, things happen in the winter, a few site visits here and there, kind of getting ready for the next season. Um, but our, which is pretty typical, right, is that our we're going to get busy again in the spring, a little bit in the summer, and again in the fall. And uh, that'll be the time that we work. So, the, you know, as far as the business goes, there's often, you know, when you look at like cash flow, it's kind of some peaks and valleys and things like that. and And that's just part of it that you have to kind of build into it. And there's part of, you also have to have a certain mindset to sort of, you know, go into this thinking, Hey, this is part of it, right? You know, there's gonna be part times where it's like you have a bunch of work signed up and you're really busy moving forward, and then the other times you say, "Yeah, where's where's the next project coming from?" And you know, that has some kind of psychological or anxiety that goes with it. But once you kind of embrace that part of it and say, "Hey, this is this is part of you know how this goes," um, you know, you kind of get through all those things and you know find the next project and do that. Now, as far as outlook and what's what's happening, um, I we're super bullish on it. I still think there's plenty of renovation work out there that's quite untapped in terms of, uh, you know, clients to work with. Now, are our clients, you I know, mean, are we the biggest fish in town and doing all of the super top high-end jobs that are, that are out there? Uh, maybe not, but, you know, we're plugging away and doing some really quality work on uh, with good clients uh, that maybe aren't the, you know, the, the Shinnecock Hills of the world and that sort of thing. Uh, but to be fair, you know, that's the meat of what golf is that's out there. Um, and then we're always looking for new opportunities in terms of, Um, kind of a strategy to bridge this gap between where we are today and where we'd like to be, right? So where we'd like to be is obviously uh, getting out there and doing some new projects, right? New golf course design. And so we've embraced a a few opportunities um, to get involved in some projects really early that are in the planning stages that are in the funding stages um, to kind of get our foot in the door and and kind of help them along with the process and um, get investment and do those sorts of things. So we're trying to do some also some creative kind of atypical things to to get in and get some projects moving forward and these happen to be a couple projects in the caribbean that we're talking about but we also have you know other things so uh, the bulk of our day-to-day work our revenue work is united states based renovation right private clubs some public that sort of thing Mm -hmm. we've on purpose from when we at least for me um avoided um going to chase down projects in vietnam or china or thailand and those sorts of things um if a really good client or project came along and to do it uh, of course i mean i think we'd do it right sand dune project in vietnam and it was a good client i think we'd go do it but we've kind of on purpose stayed away from all that chasing one of the things when we decided to do our own business is i don't want to get on an 18 hour flight anymore right and uh it's kind of lifestyle and all those things that go with it so we've you know kind of taken a circle and said hey we want to work in these areas um you know, whether it's, you know, North America, that sort of thing, um, maybe a little bit in the Caribbean and said, this is the work we want to do. And, and um, you know, is it, is anybody getting wildly wealthy off of it? No, but you know, it's also, you know, something where it certainly, you know, pays all the bills and, and keeps us going to the next year. And, you know, is obviously super enjoyable too. I mean, you just can't beat, and I'm sure you recognize this, Derek. You can't beat being your own boss and setting your own schedule and doing all those things. So,
0: that's, that's why you open your own business, right? <laughs> that's well, it. at least that's one of the, the reasons. reasons.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all the creativity part that goes with it. And, you know, it's been interesting over the years that when I got started in this, boy, you know, whatever it's been 20-some years ago, uh, naively, I, I, I probably thought that, hey, the best part of this is you sit in an office and you do these plans and you hand them off and then there's somebody out there that's executing your great ideas and, and doing all this. And I, I learned pretty early that, This is not how it works, right? (laughs) Is that you don't necessarily want to be that guy doing the plans in the office. You don't have a lot of influence on what gets built and what's out there in the field. And over the years, even though the lifestyle can get difficult sometimes and all the traveling and, you know, you hear that from other people as well, right? Is that that's kind of the worst part, but it's also the most satisfying part as well is being out there on the ground. And I've found over the years that I'm at my happiest, you know, out there in the dirt and, and doing the work and uh, doing the design work on the fly and, and, uh, you know, all the budgeting and the planning and all those things, you know, those are the, those are the things you have to do. But uh, the, the part that's really enjoyable is getting out there and doing the work.
0: You mentioned that, you know, you're, you might have an opportunity to do some new, new coursework, some new design work. What's the, what's the best site you've ever had the opportunity to be involved with?
1: Well, I, I, yeah, I think probably, you know, just straight site. So for anything that we've done on my own, um, I would say the Caney Park site is the best site um, done on the own. Now, we just got done doing some renovation work um, this past uh, summer on a really great project out called Cornerstone Club sure. out in Colorado, and it's in a super exceptional site, but you know that's a site that I'd worked on um, years ago and a project I worked on years ago with with Greg Norman. And, and uh, the golf course had subsequently closed. The members have now purchased it and, and are reopening it. And um, they invited me to come back to um, help them with the renovation and get that renovated. Those are really some pretty exceptional ones we've worked on recently. But I think uh, all the years, big picture, probably Bag in Ireland um, was probably the best site that I had an opportunity to work on. This is well, a number of years ago now, I think at the time, maybe, gosh, it's almost 20 years ago, moved over there. That's how that's how I've become friends with one of the design partners I have now, Jim McKenna. He's a superintendent there, um, Irish guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started that project. Big and, week for uh, him coming up. For... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> St. Uh, Patrick's Day. Yeah. He's, uh, he's going to be uh, – you can't get a hold of him until about Tuesday. You know? Right, that's about yeah. It. <laughs> Not answering. Um, but but uh, really, I, I think that was, uh, interestingly enough for me, a, one of the best sites I've ever had the opportunity to work on is obviously working for Greg for doing that. Uh, but B, um, you know, got an opportunity to, I mean, I think I was 26 or 27 at the time, um, an opportunity to, to go over, uh, live there, uh, run the construction site, um, you know, do the work on site and then also get exposed. That was the first time in my life being able to get exposed to, um, all the Irish golf, all the Scottish golf, English golf, you know, spend a lot of time going to see other places. And I think that was by far the most eye opening um, you know, thing that, uh, it could have done. So, A, I got to work on a great project and a great site, but B, the education was incredible, whether it's living in another country or all the architecture and golf that you get to see. It's just it totally changes outlook completely from, uh, maybe late teens, early twenties and what I thought golf course design and golf courses were all about. You kind of realize in a hurry, I didn't know anything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, and, and so it was an yeah. unbelievable opportunity. Um, and, and that's, you know, really the, the upside of, uh, a lot of the years in the, the working for greg is that if so many opportunities to work in you know uh, these really far-flung locations and see the world and you know sand dune locations in vietnam that are incredible that are to work on right for greg and and uh tons of really good opportunities to go uh be exposed to a tremendous amount of things and and i think that's really shaped you know things moving forward and and you know I guess in the search to try to find one of those sites again right so
0: so i i really like yeah. dune bag um but it did have a yeah. it had it's had a rough rollout it had a rough rollout and it's it's yes. undergone some modifications and even today like when oh, yeah. you, americans especially i don't know what europeans think of it but you know it mm-hmm. you get some people that like it some people that, that don't like it as much Where, do you think mm-hmm. the dune bag will stand the test of time as is right now or
1: will it well i mean it's changed a lot uh when martin hartry came in and did a bunch of work when trump bought it so it has changed a tremendous it does amount I mean, the connotation
0: a- is well too now
1: yeah i mean it's yeah, exactly i mean you kind of put the whole trump thing with it you know politics aside um you know it, it's it typically i wouldn't be you know necessarily going out of my way to see many trump golf courses but the um and, and the, the even the turf varieties have changed and that sort of thing and i think early on i think some of the, the criticism there it was it was probably pretty fair in terms of the level of difficulty and not being kind of mode wide enough and playable enough right mm-hmm. and i think if i look back at it uh, you know objectively and you know as we talked about like hey if you let you let Pete out on one of his golf courses, he'll change it every week. Right. Well, I, I would probably have a similar, you know, attitude towards, towards dune bag. I mean, this is Greg's project and, you know, he makes the decisions on it, but, um, when we were doing it, but I think it was a mix between some of the best golf holes I've seen anywhere and some that probably could be improved, you know, and, and get better. Um, that were a bit awkward and, and, um, You know and how they're executed and 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 how they're done but then there's also a mix of you know some of the most natural holes that you you couldn't come up with better if you had to you know basically following the land and and doing all the things that you would do i mean 13 of those holes are just mowed out that's it right yeah um and so that's some of the you know most interesting stuff out there and uh so i think you know there's probably just a few a few things here and there but i think overall is really you know tremendous project and um you know a lot of great people involved in it, and you know, a lot of friends from over the years that uh, from that project. But unfortunately, new owners today, and it's got to change quite a bit. But that, you know, what that's part of the industry too. If you haven't had a project close or be significantly changed by somebody else. You probably haven't been doing this very long. <laughs> so, well, there's also, as, as time goes by, there's just you
0: know? an yeah. acceptance for almost anything, really. And sure. Dupig is still kind of, you know, people who play it still remember that it's a new course. That's how they view it. But in 50 yep. years, it won't be a new course anymore, and it'll just kind of blend no. into that whole Irish Lynx environment. That's yeah. my prediction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, and that's that's part of the, uh, to overcome too, right? A new course in Scotland or a new course in, right. in in Ireland. I mean, they look at it as, you know, like, well, what is this? You know, I mean, you look at a course like Castle Stewart, right? Really, you know, a fabulous place that um, Gilhan stood up in, in Scotland. And I'm sure it's looked at as like, oh, that's the new course the American did, right? But it's, you know, fantastic place um, and feels old and all this kind of stuff. It's just, yeah, it's tough in that part of the world to get uh, um, to get over that mantra of it's new right? Yeah. And everything else is 180 years just old. Got, it's like the <laughs> kid who has
0: to sit old. at the, the adult table and just keep his mouth shut and,
1: you know, yeah. until he's ready, <laughs> exactly. until he's ready to get in the big chair. Exactly. So exactly. on the yeah.
0: concept of new, what's, what's the best modern golf course you've seen or the golf course that's new modern that you were not involved in that stimulates you the most?
1: All right. So I listened to a few of the podcasts the last couple of weeks. Okay. So so I yeah, I'm not saying Friars Head. That's what I might say if no one else has said it. Somebody's already said it, so we're taking that off the list. Right? A few people. Um, I think just yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really an exceptional place, right? And I think for a lot of reasons. And I think it's it's from a golf, but b experience is incredible too, right? I mean, they really get it on so many notes there. But I think to to go uh, to introduce maybe something a little bit different, I would probably go somewhere between uh, like a Kingsley Club up in. Um, in um yeah northern michigan, michigan. yeah good one yeah good one. Uh, mike devries course um man the, the last time i was there and played it it just played rock hard super fast it was like man this is killer you know i mean it was it was tough you know all that kind of stuff but the conditioning and the, the variety and creativity of the golf holes really really a ton of fun like that's one you could go do um and i i kind of judge this as, as not the one i want to play once a year i want to say hey what's the one i want to go play uh, all the time and i think that would be one all the time and then i think one non-traditional I'll kinda of lump this in together, like we'll say modern. I would say either punch bowl or that thirteen hole course at Bandon Dunes, both of those are like the total sleeper of the resort. I think you couldn't have more fun than those. And you know, last time I went and did a Bandon Dunes trip, I went with I was fortunate enough to go with a bunch of childhood friends that grew up playing golf and you know, we played thirty six whole day, but we couldn't wait to get off that last green and and just haul to the punch bowl and you know, start betting and drinking beers, and if it didn't get dark, we would have been out there <laughs> the whole time, right? Uh, and so, I think the, that, as far as modern things, um, both of those are credible fun. You know, yeah. as far as some non-traditional I, stuff, I like that. that I mean, could you know be more fun.
0: And the thing about those short courses is, and I was, I said this to somebody the other day, and because it, it just kind of came to me, and I, but I think it holds a lot of truth. One of the things, aside from the the ability to play different shots, and it's so unique and it's different. Most of the time that people play them is usually late in the day. So you, yep. you're already satisfied. You're already emotionally filled up with great golf because these, these courses exist at these exotic, beautiful locations. But yep. and you're getting the soft light. You're getting that twilight. You're having a yep. beer. So, I mean, it's, it's the perfect environment to unwind. It provides the perfect environment to just kind of cap off the day. It's like dessert. And, you know, it, no I don't know. Yeah. That would be the one hang up if you try to take that, these little short course examples and put them in the middle of a town, which I still think would work. I think we should, you know, I, I'd you're love to right, see. You're
1: right, though. It's this, it's this extra golf right it, it satisfies this extra it's golf. Such an ambience, hole, there's 18.
0: such an ambiance to it
1: yeah yeah i mean we so well, one of the you know to share um the last time we went we went and did a quick you know 13 hole loop there um you know and um at uh, what is it it's not trails it's preserve. preserve. right so that's what yeah, it's probably. called it. yeah, preserve and it's like an 82 yard hole or something and one of the guys in our group got a hole in one right i mean so that's the kind of stuff yeah. right there That's like you know c- couldn't be more fun, right? And this is your last little quick nine, 13 holes of the day. Uh, You get up to the 13th hole. We knew it was like a tradition to putt on that one, right? So you putt from the tee down to the green on the last hole, you know, and that kind of stuff, right? And I mean, it's just it's all just super fun. And it's, I mean, it's golf, right? You're still going out and doing all this stuff, but it's, it's not the, Hey, I'm keeping my score and doing all this. It's, it's, I've got three clubs in my hand and here's, we're going to go do it. And, and I've got an hour before it gets dark and yeah, you're having a beer and yeah, it couldn't be better. Right. Best time of day to play golf, right?
0: Best time so. of day to play golf, <laughs> best way to play golf. Uh, it, it's too bad we we don't have that kind of golf. That's easier to get to and easier to find.
1: Uh, no question. You know, it's not just you down and, you know, uh, listening to the other podcast, not just you down there. It, it's it's, it's
0: everywhere. not me. are you sure <laughs> no it's not, it's
1: not just a circle around you guys i mean god we'd kill to have something like that around milwaukee and it would do gangbusters you know it would just be you know people are dying to do it i mean there's a there's a lot of public golf in milwaukee through the county park system and the, the counties run a whole system of gosh it must be six or eight golf courses and you know and they're all quite busy but they're extremely ordinary right i mean it's very basic and they're and they're busy and you know if you had something that uh um you know, there was a little out of the ordinary and was a little bit of an upgrade and, you know, people could seek out and I think they would seek out the, some of the short course stuff. You know, I happen to live only, I don't know, a quarter mile from the lake here at Lake Michigan and Milwaukee. And there's this little, uh, I would describe it as like a pitch and putt course that's right on this lake park that's over there. And you go there any day of the week and it's people with, you know, grabbing a 12 pack of beers and going out and do this with like two clubs. It's full. It's absolutely full. And it's like, Eighteen little short holes has' maintained mediocre to poor um, you know and and I think it has an opportunity to be some, so much better you know and and be just a ton of fun that you know it's all these people that hey i don 't want to drive thirty minutes outside the city and go you know find a golf course and don't have enough time or you know um, hey we 're not that serious of a golfer and you know we 're going to go do this. Um, I think it's an example that there could be some little one off short courses that that do great you know yeah, it
0: just goes to sh- it also goes to show you that there's, there are barriers, you know, not socioeconomic barriers, but even just like logistical barriers that keep people away from the golf yep. course. Because these people are are willing to put up with some mediocre golf, it sounds like, just oh, because yeah. it's easy to get to. It's convenient for them. The price is right. Yep. So yep. The, there's, is a, right. there's an audience that's, that's out there for what we're talking about.
1: Yeah. No question. Yeah. I mean, if you keep the price moderate... Um, And you have some choices, right? Um, You know, a good example, going back to that Caney Park project, there's two golf courses there in town that the city owns, and they have purposely kept the other golf course um, a little bit more basic and at a lower price point. And um, and, and I think that's a a good approach, right, is to say, hey, maybe we have one that's a little bit higher price point. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a little more challenging in terms of what's there. Maybe it's a little bit more of a serious golfer. Not that you couldn't go out there if you'd be introduced to it, but we have another product here in town where... You know, it's a little more laid back. The standard of maintenance is maybe a little bit, you know, more basic. It's a lower fee, that kind of thing. So I think there's, you know, having a little something for everybody. It's just that unfortunately, the the higher end of it, and when I say higher end, not higher end dollars or those sort of things, but the higher end in terms of architecture or golf experience is a bit lacking. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's, um, well,
0: let's leave but, it right there on that positive note yeah. with our hopes for the future, <laughs> the, the good work that yeah, you're doing.
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> Great. Matt, it's good talking to you, bud.
1: Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on and talk a little golf architecture with you. And and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that I've really enjoyed the podcast. And for a, a golf architect or kind of golf junkie, you know, don't have a tremendous amount of exposure all the time to other people in the industry. So, it's been really interesting to listen to other people's viewpoints and kind of how they work and what they do. So, you know, I, I think it's been it's good not just for the you know, the consumer part of it, but I think it's good for our, our us golf architects to hear this too. So well, I good, I'm pleased podcast. to hear you
0: say that. That's part of the goal yeah. is to kind of create yeah. the dialogue and sort of the horizontal transition of ideas and thoughts. Great. Okay, Matt. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Eric. All right, Matt Dusenberry, ladies and gentlemen. I thought it was interesting at the end of the conversation there how he mentioned that he'd gone back and listened to a few of these podcasts and that. This was the only way, uh, due to his, you know, his work schedule and, and what he's into, that he gets a chance to hear what his contemporaries are doing and, and thinking. Uh, you know, th- that doesn't seem right, does it? kind of ties in back to the conversation that Keith Cutton and I had about the, the dearth of discussion and ex- the exchange of ideas, having any kind of substantial dialogue between architects about the profession and about their design ideas. There just isn't a, a forum for that. There's Golf Club Atlas, of course, and uh, it's an incredible resource, but you know, only a few architects really participate in that. You know, I don't begrudge an architect for not sitting down and, and writing an essay every month and, and trying to get it published on, on what he or she's doing and, and thinking, or to sit down and write a book. But I think if there was a better forum for an exchange of ideas, we'd be in a much better place. I know what you're thinking. The American Society of Golf Course Architects provides that forum. It does, if you're a member, if you want to talk about it behind closed doors, but no information gets out. Nothing nothing that useful comes from that organization as far as promoting the art or really getting into the uh, a critical analysis of where design in the profession is. Their uh, purpose is to promote work for each other and, and to keep uh, the wheels of their profession greased. It's just interesting that uh, here we are in 2019 and, and that, uh, you know, aside from from the great work and the great writing that Tom Doak and Mike Clayton and Jeff Shackelford and Ian Andrew and, and some others ha- are, are brave enough to put out that the place where you have to come to get uh, <laughs> sort of an unvarnished and in-depth discussion uh, to get one-on-one, to get true ideas, to try to get a flow, a dialogue, a conversation, go a real true conversation going about golf course design and the business of golf course design. You have to go to a podcast. You have to go to an independent person who starts a podcast like Feed the Ball. And that's that's where the discussion is. that's where the conversation's happening. It's not happening in magazines right now. It's not happening in any other kind of public forum. There isn't one, so this is it so <laughs> i guess i'm I guess what I'm doing right now is is promoting the goodness and the cause of of podcasts and uh the good news is if you like golf course architecture and you'd like to hear architects talk about what they're thinking, what they're doing. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here for a while. So keep tuning in. If you do like the conversation, go ahead and let me know about it. Reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at Feed the Ball. I'd love to get messages from you guys. And also go to FeedTheBall.com. You will see uh, a link there for podcasts. If you've missed some past episodes or you want to go back and and re-listen to an old favorite, it's right there for you. I want to thank Matt Dusenberry for joining me today. It was a great conversation. Check out TalkingGolf.com, I'm part of the Talking Golf Network now with Rod Morey's State of the Game podcast with Jeff Shackleford and Mike Clayton. Talking Golf History with Connor Wood, the Icy Golf Podcast. Great conversations uh, with all kinds of luminaries from the golf world. And look for some uh, potential new podcasts showing up there in the near future, hopefully. So keep checking that out, talkinggolf.com. Once again, thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.